Steve and Kevin review Rivals of Ixalan for Vintage on episode 75 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 75 of So Many Insane Plays, our Rivals of Ixalan set review. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, you can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. We don't have too many announcements for this episode since we're recording relatively soon after our last show. <laughs> we'll talk about some upcoming tournaments as a reminder. In my region, we have BC Comics and Battle Creek on January 27th coming up. On that same day, as I mentioned in the last show, we have uh, Game Time Indie in Indianapolis running their monthly event, which I'm going to try and see if I can announce going forward. Also, newly announced Team Sirius Open on February 3rd at the Pop Shop in Sandusky, Ohio. Steve, how about in your neck of the woods? In Berkeley, California, Eudaimonia has a vintage event, vintage tournament, 15 proxy, on February the 4th, Sunday the 4th. Uh, the last event that we had was just a complete snafu because it, it coincided <laughs> with a uh, GP Santa Clara uh, the Grand Prix Santa Clara, which I originally see. wasn't going to have any vintage or old school, but some community members independently organized something. And so people were kind of, I think, confused about where to go or what to do. And, and obviously the GP is a big draw. So that thing just fizzled out, unfortunately. Oh, that's but too it, bad. It won't in February. So Steve, uh, thinking about local tournament scenes, and this is not something we, you and I have touched on very much before, but do you encounter many players that aren't vintage players in your area or in your, say, travels that talk to you about the format and say, hey, I'd love to play vintage, but it's too expensive, yada, yada, yada? Does that happen to you very much? <laughs> um, it sounds like it happens to you a lot. So uh, <laughs> is that is that the case? I, I did, I'm asking because I didn't want to assume that this was a common thing yeah, for I, you. You know, I think it's one of those things that waxes and wanes over time. Uh-huh. You know, where I, I may not be the most approachable person, so I probably don't get into kind of, you know, casual conversations with people who um, who might be interested. Uh, but I, I've definitely heard people say that, but it, it's yeah. not, it's not, I would say, a very common thing that people say to me. Well, and you don't participate in casual magic very much either. You don't, you're not right. the sort to play EDH and that kind of thing. I don't even go to pre-releases, so. Right. Well, in my area, I am the sort to do all of those things. And I was just reminded of the fact that, at least in the southern Michigan area, this is one of the densest populations of vintage tournaments within driving distance of anywhere in the U.S., maybe, possibly, with the possible exception of some regions in the Northeast. But I am frequently party to conversations when people, I talk about formats and magic and I tell people that I play vintage and I frequently hear, oh, that's cool. Vintage is cool. I'd love to try it, but I can't, you know, afford another car or house, right? 
Uh-huh. And so at which point I frequently tell people, well, because you're in South Michigan, actually, you're in the nexus of proxy vintage in the U.S. And it's actually the cheapest format in Magic. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just want to I, I realized recently that I don't say that on the show very much. For those of you who are in an area that has proxy events, I would encourage you, if you're not already, to approach other locals who may not participate simply because they don't know the vintage is so available if you're in that sort of region. And that goes for Southern Michigan, definitely. And that is um, anyone who's listening to me who is a, a Michigan area player who's not already participating. And I know that list is probably pretty small. But <laughs> yeah. but if you're one of those people, or if you know people who are adjacent to that kind of situation, then I would say just remind your locals that Vintage is uh, it's frequently a full proxy format, frequently a very affordable. And if you know a player like me or someone like me, they're frequently willing to just hand you a deck, you know, a full proxy yeah. deck, pick, pick your archetype and, and go for it. Yeah, I used to keep on hand just a box of vintage decks that I could loan out. I mean, I've certainly done that in old school more recently. Yeah. But lack of uh, people making requests upon me has just caused me to to that offer to fall into to disuse. Um, yeah. It's actually interesting, you know, well, first of all, that's a great reminder for our listeners, uh, especially those who are in your, your neck of the woods, as, so to speak. But actually, it's kind of the opposite situation. I, I frequently or sometimes put myself out there as willing to play magic with people, non-vintage magic with people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like... I have some acquaintances and friends who dabble in magic and I said, you know, if you if you if you have any interest in going to a pre-release, let me know. I'd love to go with you. The problem mm. with pre-releasing for me, which I used to enjoy when I was uh in the same neighborhood as you, is that I don't mm-hmm. really have anyone to go with and it's not fun just to go by myself. So, if I if I lived in the same state as you, I have no doubt I would be <laughs> tagging along with you. But right. um so it's kind of the invert in, inverted uh, position for me where it's like I, I would enjoy going to some of these more um, casual events. I'd even enjoy going to, I don't know, um, you know, pre-releases or 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 draft or sealed events. But sure, but I, no one, you know, the opportunity never seems to arise. So, um, you know, I just don't <laughs> well, have friends who who would who would drag me or or even invite me to them. Magic is first and foremost, I think, for you and I and a lot of other people, a social activity, right? Right. And so, go ahead. I I was just going to add to what you said that you know the the antisocial part of magic can also be enjoyed very cheaply uh, vintage uh, that <laughs> is magic the gathering online you know provides a very inexpensive uh, way to enjoy vintage that's not entirely antisocial but it's not not as social <laughs> as going with your friends to the local card store it's certainly a different yes and and it's well, not but it's not very expensive you know so you don't need to have a, a banknote to uh, to buy into a vintage on magic online and in fact, I hope you don't mind me putting out there that I think you're converting your VSL winnings into um, some vintage staples. Is that correct? Actually, I spent much of today doing exactly that. For those who may not know, which I wouldn't expect most people outside the VSL not to, the VSL prizes were distributed yesterday. And thankfully, I won a Black Lotus, which is fun, but yeah. also a whole <laughs> bunch of Rivals of Ixalan packs which I rapidly transitioned into vintage staples. And so now, yes, I do have a Magic Online account. It is my own. It has at least one, like one and a half decks worth of vintage cards in it. And I think I'm going to try, I think I'm going to try entering some events here pretty soon. We'll see you in some of the leagues, maybe. Yeah, well, that's probably the right place to start, don't you think? Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
So sure. Yep. I am I officially have a, a Magic Online vintage collection and it's thanks to my the prize support that Wizards provided for my performance in the VSL. So I'm grateful for that. Very cool. So anyway, any other announcements, Steve? Nope. All right. In that case, it wouldn't be a set review if we didn't have our report card for our prior set review. So let's talk about how we did for Ixalan. So as we like to do, Steve, let's talk about how our predictions for Ixalan fared versus the actual results. According to tcdex.net, vintage results for tournaments that have 16 or more players. And to clarify, tcdex does include the Magic the Gathering online vintage challenges. So it has the top eights for the vintage challenges. That's right. And they also include dailies, actually, when those happen. And they don't anymore, obviously. But back in the day, they included those. Those rarely passed our threshold for player counts at 16 players. But just FYI there. So let's see how we did. Now, normally during our set reviews, there are a number of cards that we don't expect to see any play. And that's no, no different for Exelon. So for the likes of Ashes of the Abhorrent and Deep Root Champion and Coppola, Warden of Waves... It was zeros across the board. With an asterisk for uh, Deep Root Champion, which did make a <laughs> <laughs> an appearance in the VSL, right? Twice, in fact. Yeah. Because wasn't it Dave Williams and Paul Rietzel that played it? Good point. Mm-hmm. So definitely some high-profile experimentation with Deep Root Champion that has not yet manifest in the, in the leagues or any other tournaments. Oh, there are a few double zeros from our set re- uh, set review that actually manifest with appearance. So we'll go wow. to those next. Cool. Yeah. Takatli Honor Guard is an interesting case. This had one top eight appearance in a an interesting four color. It was mostly Abzon, but it was a survival of the fittest Phyrexian Dreadnought deck that was using Takatli Honor Guard to subvert the drawback on Phyrexian Dreadnought. <laughs> which is an awesome application. That is cool. That's very it's cool. The only deck of its kind that I have seen making a, a top eight appearance in a, in a large enough tournament. And then there were two appearances of Hostage Taker. Hostage Taker, which we had an interesting discussion about, well, is it good enough to play here and there? And it turns out that it is good enough, at least on two occasions in some fish variant decks that were mostly like bug fish with Hostage Taker as a one of. So... Takatli Honor Guard was seen as kind of an illusionary mask type card, and then mm-hmm. um, Hostage Taker kind of appeared, what would you say, as kind of like a Notion Thief type card, just random? It appeared in to take the role of just value removal against, possibly against Oath and just other creature decks. Uh, it's hard to say. I haven't actually tested it myself, but the theory in my eyes was there when we talked about there are certain matchups where you would just want something that filled this role. Right. I mean, we spent a lot of time on Hostage Taker, and we did a pretty thorough analysis, but it's, I think where we struggled was figuring out how could you get really enough value in the theft, yeah. in the theft to really make it worth it. I think that, that explains why it really hasn't appeared um, right. very frequently. The, the Takatli Honor Guard case is a little bit more interesting because I think you and I, our discussion, I, I don't recall the specifics, but I suspect that our discussion centered around how to use it in a di- disruptive capacity. As opposed to <laughs> yeah. a kind of a, how do you get get synergy with cards like uh, Phyrexian uh, Dreadnought? So that's right. that's a cool, innovative application. 
And all it takes is, you know, one other creature in the Dreadnought family that's that efficient, and maybe it could be a more a more common thing. We'll see. There's a problem, though, with that approach, and that is the Takatli Honor Guard is, um, is symmetrical, meaning it applies to... Yeah, it applies to both players. It just says creatures entering the battlefield don't cause abilities to trigger. That means there's a limit on how popular it can become because as soon as you play yours and you play the mirror, then your honor you're guards help your opponents. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> enabling your... <laughs> it's like the Oath of Druid problem in the mirror match. Exactly. Exactly. So I don't expect that to ever truly happen, but it will be an interesting mirror match when, it, when and if it does. There's one other double zero to mention, and that is Dowsing Dagger, which we both predicted zeros of and was actually a zero. Now let's move on to our predictions of non-zeros. This is, this is my favorite part of our set reviews, finding, <laughs> finding out how we actually did. Right. First is Unclaimed Territory. Steve, you predicted three, I predicted two. The actual was zero. Hmm. I'm very surprised, actually, but because I know that I wasn't predicting a high number, but this is exactly the kind of card that really... Uh, that really goes well in a certain style of deck. So, if, you know, the four and five color human style deck, this Takatli Honor Guard deck, honestly, if it wasn't trying to cast such a diversity of creatures, is the sort of deck where you might see this, but it hasn't caught on yet. Yeah, there just aren't a lot of humans decks in the vintage format. I mean, the percentage of humans decks in any given tournament is probably like 1%, if not smaller. Mm-hmm. So, right. um, and then, you know, it, it, well, the drawback of being able to only cast you generate uh, colored mana right. to cast the creature type right. means that you can't use it to play, you know, tactical disruption like Thoughtseize or Swords or something. And I, I also think it it has not helped that Eldrazi um, has really kind of disappeared over the last year. That's a good point. One of the use cases we definitely talked about was in one or more colored Eldrazi decks. And you're absolutely right that the, the somewhat disappearance of that whole archetype from the competitive landscape probably contributed to the fact that there weren't any appearances here well next up is and i'm going to save the best for last here i think next up is chart a course steve you predicted four i predicted five the actual was only two but the use case was it was an interesting scenario because the (laughs) use cases were in oath decks primarily and That is not exactly where I expected to find the card. I really thought it would be more of a graveyard value situation in Snapcaster decks Mm. and creatures and decks with higher mana costs. But the the oath use case is is obviously basically filtering, uh, you know, situational and undesirable cards out of your hand, which is a completely reasonable use case when you can only play one brainstorm and you can't play Jace Vrin's Prodigy. (laughs) Right. Can't use it. You can't use it with that. Did this did this ever appear to your knowledge in turbo xerox decks no it didn't that's that's the really interesting part i i like i said i really thought that it was going to be a snapcaster interaction that really yeah really was the the primary drive for this card and it it simply it was almost entirely in oath that is in its top appearances now there was let's see there was yeah the most common appearances are in oath but actually now that i re-examine it there was an appearance in the Ligla Catalana de Vintage in fourth place in December. And that's on December 30th. And that's in a Delver shell. Okay. I, I thought was, I had recalled seeing this in maybe the Vintage Challenge events in a, in a Delver type deck. Just yeah. for a little additional card advantage boost. Well, there was 
uh, Br- Brian Kelly has played it a number of times most recently in Oath this month. Interesting. Yeah, those are the most recent appearances. But I think I think that Shard of Course is actually here for the long haul. I really do. So, so I think you- that it's the sort of effect <laughs> that is very prized, you know, in, a, in Eternal formats in general. And I think the graveyard interactions can only increase over right. time. Right. Snapcaster's not going anywhere. Cards like Ancient Grudge. So I, I genuinely think that we should keep an eye out for Chart of Course because it won't take much, I think, to really push it into a strong playability. Right. It's interesting how effective it could be in Oath because you can just ditch either superfluous creatures or even better cards like Ancient Grudge mm-hmm. that can be flashed back or Croson rec- uh, Reclamation type effects. So that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of good candidates there. I, I, I will take this as a narrow victory over you. well the simple truth is we uh, the type of use that i was predicting was only part of the result basically but we were still very close you know you were off by two i was off by three i mean this is still a very close prediction on our part next up not so close sentinel totem reminder this is the uh the exile all cards from all graveyards artifact variant this is when scries when it comes into play you predicted four i predicted three the actual was zero interesting I'm not sure why that is. I think you and I talked about the various applications and why certain decks might want this over things like Tormod's Crypt and or Relic of uh, Progenitus. Yeah, exactly. But but no one no one took that path, and and I'm not sure why. Obviously, so, you know that Relic has straight up card advantage in terms of drawing yeah. cards, so that's why it's so popular in workshop sideboards. But I'm not. I'm holding out hope still that Sentinel Totem will see a little bit of play down the road. Yeah, I mean. One of the things that is advantaged that that provides an advantage here over Relic is that it does not have a mana activation cost. On yep. the other hand, Relic can be used recursively over time. Um, you can just get a bunch of uses out of it before you pop it. But on the other hand, I would think that the immediate Scry has potentially more value than like a, a later turn or a, uh, a later game draw. Yeah. Right, just because of how tempo oriented shop decks can be. I'm a little. I am. I'm genuinely surprised by that. We also talked about the interaction with Paradoxical Outcome, which is useful. And, you know, if you could get repeated scries off of this if you had the time post-sideboard. Do you happen to recall, Kevin, what anti-graveyard tactical configuration the shops decks from Vintage Championships used? Did they have did they have Relic of Progenitus? Or is that Yeah, it was it was a combination of relics and Tormod's crypts almost exclusively. Well, uh, you would think then that this would have appeared, right? I mean, among those, if you're going to use a combination, think about, I mean, so here's one way of thinking about it. Is the marginal utility of a second relic better or worse than this? That's a good point. But I mean, I I genuinely believe that the better comparison is Tormod's Crypt Hmm. in that you get so much more value by paying a mana here with a scry. I, I don't know. It's it's. I think that we've made the comparisons very plain, and I don't think this is the end of the story for Sentinel Totem. I think there's a. I think there's the right spot in the right deck that wants this effect, this halfway point kind of over Tormod's Crypt. It could also just be inertia, right? That sure. That workshop players are familiar with and set in their configuration and see no reason to change. So you you could create a kind of historical counter. Uh, factual where suppose this had been printed instead of relic and relic <laughs> had been printed in Ixalan. Yeah. One, one could argue that it, we would be seeing zero relics and and you know <laughs> s- s- sentinel totems in that in that spot right i am reminded of mana confluence versus city of brass 
We had a conversation <laughs> just like that about how, yes, Mana Confluence is superior, and no, and they're not all going to change to it. Right, <laughs> Because everyone true. has and enjoys their City of Brass. At least in that case, uh, <laughs> you know, flavor aside and, and historical inertia aside, that Mana Confluence was simply tactically superior because right, of the, the Tangle Wire. Whereas in this case, it's it's a more debatable debatable question or issue. But And it's probably the case that fear of mental misstep is pushing people away from this also. It, people who would yeah. choose Tormod's Crypt probably look at this and think, I'd rather not walk my right. graveyard removal into missteps, I'll just stick with the crypts. Right, which means that this is really in competition with Relic, which... Yeah, yeah. So, we'll see. Long-term goals here as well. Hmm. So, that brings us to... Sorceress Spyglass. Now, this is a good one. This is a fun one. <laughs> Steve, you predicted 35. Oh, I predicted 45. Jeez. The actual was 43. What? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I counted up. That's that's 22 appearances in the main deck for Sorceress Spyglass, which surprises me a bit. 22 appearances in the sideboard and one in both. There's your 43. That is remarkable. Yeah. I- you know, I in our set review for Ixalan, I and certainly in the promotion of it, I think I misled people because I said that um, that we had record predictions. That may still be true, but I was going back and listening and and to some of the older, very early shows, and it is worth just putting in context, Kevin. So this is an enormous number, right? Forty-five, yes. forty-three yes. is an enormous number, but Snapcaster Mage. Uh, I don't remember what our predictions were, but it it. It had 70 top eight appearances as a point of comparison. And then the next set we reviewed had Grafdigger's Cage. And it <laughs> and it had over a hundred and maybe hundred and ten appearances. So those are kind of like the benchmarks for <laughs> top eight appearances in our in our set review report cards. Right. But this is still back I, I think that back when we were doing Snapcasters, we weren't including Magic Online. No, we in didn't our obviously Magic Online didn't have vintage at the time. Yeah. So, but but um, this is these are remarkable numbers. Even though those are huge numbers, I don't remember whether we had actually predicted numbers at the time. Whether we'd started doing that, or we just expected like we just classified a card as playable or marginally playable <laughs> or fringe or whatever. Yeah. So so I'm pretty sure we did for Snapcaster. But I believe the, us. I remember, remember us talking about the twenty appearances. <laughs> Well, in well it was no, it was seventy appearances for Snapcaster. Well, I'm I'm sorry, I'm, I must be misremembering. I'm thinking there was some other card that was a higher number than we thought. Deathrite Shaman. Oh, Deathrite yeah. Shaman is what I'm thinking of. Yeah, I predicted I think like five or seven, and it was way more than that. And you had yeah. predicted I think none. And we yeah. spent we mentioned that both in our year in review episode and in our set review episode. Right. It showed up. It showed up quite a bit. In fact, that year in 2000. Yeah, it was way more than we predicted because it came out in Return to Ravnica in 2012, and it began popping up everywhere in 2013 because it won. In fact, I just <laughs> I just completed a draft of the 2013 uh, <laughs> History of Vintage chapter. It won. There were two Bazaar of Moxon tournaments that year, Kevin, and it yeah. won both of them. And then you also top-aided the Vintage Championship that year at Eternal Weekend with Deathrite Shaman. So <laughs> so it, it, it did quite well. But anyway, uh, yeah, there, there, weren't, there weren't this many Deathrite Shamans, I don't think. I think it was probably no. in the 20s. So yeah. this this card has done it's actually met and the fact that it falls in between our predictions is hilarious. Uh <laughs> but I have to give it to you as a win. You took 45 and there was quite a bit of pessimism in the vintage community about this card. That yeah. is when it was spoiled and then the discussions that emerged around it, 
people said it was just not a good card. And whether it is or not, uh, the the data is undeniable. It has 43 top eight appearances in the last, you know, three or four months. So yep. there you go. I I feel I was going to use the same word. I was pessimistic about our pre- our predictions in the sense that I feel like we I felt like we over predicted. You and I, I think we're higher on this card than the community was as a whole at the time of our predictions. And yeah. I, I was specifically, you know, <laughs> 10 higher than you. But well, and the nature of champs this year, for example, we the big narrative of the workshop decks was how low to the ground they were, how aggressive they were. Less Spyglass, controlling. Yeah, more yeah. creatures and less less of this type of effect. Right. Exactly. And Spyglass was not fitting that model very strongly. But this card found a home in, in many workshop decks, but it found a home in other decks too. You know, Brian Kelly was playing in an oath at champs, yeah, for example. I'm sure Brian There's, Kelly has spiked those numbers. Yeah, exactly. So it just, I think it turns out that I, I'm not sure that we envisioned the exact landscape of workshops per se, but we still clearly got the gist of how effective and how uni- universal this card was going to be because of its, its broad range of impacts on the format. Right. Uh, just to, underscore several points you've made i recall emphasizing how the the combination of effects and particularly the informational uh, advantage mm-hmm. f- you know fed brian kelly desires to to be able to have information <laughs> and in such an efficient way it could fit in the multitude of decks like oath yep. but i also recall to your earlier point i recall having a conversation with you maybe even at eternal weekend where i said you know i made some remark to you about how you felt it was performing and you you were you were kind of dour uh, about <laughs> you know how, how uh, about your prediction you felt yep. that you felt that it was going to fall far short of your prediction and uh and I was a little a little more sanguine but uh, I I was a little bit more comfortable as well because I had predicted far less than you so it <laughs> actually turns out that you know if if we were going to look bad I I felt maybe a little too haughtily that I was going to look a little less bad <laughs> but so it it is I think uh with uh appropriate irony that you deserve the win on this. Uh. <laughs> well, thank you. I I must admit that I don't think the exact scenario that I was picturing when I made my prediction has come to pass. There's definitely more use, more utility use as you just described, but I'll still take it. <laughs> <laughs> We have one last mention for Ixalan, and that is a card we did not review, and I think for somewhat good reason, but mostly because uh, our listeners didn't request it, and that is Carnage Tyrant. Mm. Now, so it goes down as a double zero for us because we didn't make a prediction. The actual appearances are seven. Seven. Which, if you're paying attention, that makes it the second most popular card from Ixalan in terms of top eight appearances in Vintage. And all of those, 100% of those appearances are sideboards in Oath. This yeah. is something that Brian <laughs> Kelly popularized, and he represents a handful of these, but also people who have taken his technology and run with it represent the rest. And it is an, a mirror breaker that's you know almost impossible to remove and uncounterable. So Brian has popularized this trend with his Infernal Titans in particular, but other creatures in the past, Dr- Dramica, for example, of having a good, firm castable threat in the six mana range that is reliable in a blue mirror that can just close the game by itself when you don't want to be on the oath plan no it's it's absolutely true um we have in the past though interviewed these type of cards and by these type of cards i mean brian kelly cards (laughs) meaning (laughs) Right, right meaning um tactically unusual but um but powerful oath mirror trumps 
yeah. um, well positioned fi- or oath finishers for that aren't in the in the vein or mold of Gristlebrand that just win the, don't they don't just win the game but they have situational utility that make right. them quite effective. Uh, so I would um, I would direct our listeners' attention to our episode fifty podcast, which was our Oath of the Gatewatch um, set review um, from two thousand fifteen, which was you know not long after uh, Brian Kelly. Um, won the vintage championship and with the North American, with the vintage championship, we covered uh, Sphinx of the Final Word in the third hour of that show, Kevin. Mm-hmm. And I recall in the 10 minutes that we spent covering it, specifically mentioning it in the context of a Brian Kelly card. Well, it's finally come full circle because about a week ago, I saw a Brian Kelly oath list that was reported from the vintage, a vintage challenge 5 and 0 that, funnily enough, featured Sphinx <laughs> of the Final Word. Nice. So <laughs> it took it took three years, but uh, two and a half years, but it finally appeared in a Brian Kelly deck as I had originally envisioned. So, <laughs> nice, nice. So we have we have been on record, you know, um, uh, making recognizing and making note of these types of cards. And in particular, I think the key components are not counterable and hexproof because it makes it really difficult for slow control decks to deal with these kinds of cards. And both Carnage Tyrant. Carnage Tyrant is actually a, kind of, a, in some sense, a more efficient version of Sphinx of the Last last Word because it costs one mana less, but it doesn't have the advantages that Sphinx has, which include, you know, flying and uh, protecting all your spells from being countered. But it certainly is fits the mold of the Dragon Lord type cards that he's played in the past. Definitely. And I have a feeling we're going to continue seeing these kind of creatures appear in both sideboards and Brian Kelly decks in particular, and because this is the sort of thing that wizards like to print these days. Right. <laughs> Not right. to put it's, too fine a point on it. <laughs> right. And it, it just fits the sweet spot where, you know, Brian Kelly needs a, uses Cavern of Souls and needs a late game control trump. Right. And uh, there you have it. So that brings us to the end of our Ixalan report card. Overall, if you, if you do the math on the variances from our predictions, we did quite well on average. Our largest variance was three uh, with Sentinel Totem. That's, that's pretty darn accurate. I mean, it, yeah. it, it it is funny how um how down the vintage community was on sorcerer spyglass and yet maybe it's just our um our experience at it actually making these fairly precise predictions that mm-hmm. that fell right in between our range and just yeah. two cards from your prediction it's really <laughs> remarkable so it, i i'm a little bit surprised at this point yes but i agree so you won that one and did do we have a, a final winner Oh, you know, I wasn't tracking it as I said it. Let's see. So the only ones that one or the other of us actually won were <laughs> Sorceress Spyglass and then Charter Course, Charter Course, which went to you. So we split. So a kind of a split if you just count them all on a one-for-one basis. Uh, all the other ones, we both got either right or wrong. Right. <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> all, all the onesie-twosie stuff, yeah. Well, I, I, I enjoy going uh, to the wire with a tie. Yeah, I appreciate that myself. So that brings us to Arrivals of Ixalan. We normally begin each set review by talking about the unique mechanics of a set, and we'll do that here, but it won't be a long conversation because Rivals is unique, I think, in that it brings only one new keyword mechanic to bear, and that keyword is Ascend. And Ascend means 
I'll read the, the reminder text here. If you control 10 or more permanents, you get the city's blessing for the rest of the game. And then cards with ascend, typically, I think on a one for one basis, then refer to an additional effect if you have the city's blessing. An example being Tilanali's Summoner, which says, when it attacks, you can pay XR. If you do, create X11 red elemental creature tokens that are tapped and attacking. At the beginning of your next end step, exile those tokens unless you have the city's blessing. <laughs> so, so the city's blessing, when a card has ascend in play, is a triggered ability that triggers once the condition is satisfied? Or is it a more complicated ability? It's not a trigger. It's an it's, it's a static ability. Static, okay. Yes, and which is important. There are lots of rules implications for the difference there. You can't miss having the city's blessing. That's very important. So, so if, from a rule you, standpoint, where you normally could miss a trigger, this yeah. is not a trigger. All of the ascend cards are written as a static ability or part of the resolution of an ability or effect that it can, is not missable. That's a great clarification. So if you did yes. miss it, you would have to rewind or handle it. That's right. Yeah, you have to. It's up to a judge how you handle it, but the the baseline is to attempt to rewind to see what would happen if you properly had tracked the city's blessing. It's also worth noting that every ascend ability gives you the city's blessing for the rest of the game. Once you have it, you cannot, you cannot lose, lose it. it. Even if an opponent gets the city's blessing as well. <laughs> yeah, it's not legendary. <laughs> it's not. It's not a. Yeah, you don't fight over it, and it's it not doesn't like matter monarch which. In that right, exactly. It's not like the monarch. And it is not something that is dependent on how you got it either. If you play one spell early in the game that gives you the city's blessing, and then you play another spell later when you don't have 10 permanents, you still have the city's blessing even though you don't have the condition any longer. So that's important to keep in mind. You can't miss it, and you never lose it <laughs> no matter what. And other cards that look for it don't care whether or not you have the 10 permanents anymore. They just care about if you have the city's blessing ultimately. So... If you have a card with Ascend in play, and mm-hmm. you get the City's Blessing, yep. and then that card leaves play, and then you have another card that comes into play with Ascend, you mm-hmm. still have the City's Blessing. You should still have it from the first time you got it, yes. But you do need the card with Ascend to, in a sense, trigger it. It's not technically um, a trigger, but... <laughs> that's right, you're right. I mean, cards with Ascend are the ones that check to see you have it also. I don't think... I'm not 100% sure, because I haven't done this math. But I don't think there's a card that asks you if you have the city's blessing and doesn't also have ascend. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I think. But let me let me double check one example because there was a land that said you can draw. Nope, that land has ascend too. No, I I think that 100% of the cards that ask you about the city's blessing also have ascend. Got it. Now it's worth noting, of course, that this whole mechanic is not very vintage friendly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not many vintage games end before one player has ten permanents to begin with. And as is usual for new mechanics, most of the bonuses you get from the Ascend mechanic across this set aren't good enough for Vintage to begin with. So we may talk about one or two exceptions here, but in general, this is not a very (laughs) Vintage-focused mechanic. Yeah, even if there was a a card that said, uh, Ascend, you win the game, it probably (laughs) would not. (laughs) Sorry, Ascend, if you have the City's Blessing, you win the game. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It probably would not be good enough. (laughs) That, that's probably true, yes. That's probably true. Just because of the nature of the format. So, <laughs> To put it in extreme get, terms. <laughs> yeah. So let's get into specific cards as requested by you, the listeners, via Twitter. And as a reminder, we do outreach to you when we ask you to recommend cards for us. So if there's anything that we're not covering, 
Once again, in the future, be sure to email us or tweet us or otherwise contact one of us. Yes, exactly. And thank you, everyone, for all of your good responses to our request via Twitter in this episode, because we have several and they're all from you. First up, we have Masterminds Acquisition. This is 2BB Sorcery. Choose one. Search your library for a card, put it into your hand, then shuffle your library, or choose a card you own from outside the game and put it into your hand. Steve, we've got a pretty clear combination here of demonic slash diabolic tutor and uh Death Wish. And and Death Wish, basically, without the without that drawback. So for four mana, do you play a demonic tutor that is also a Death Wish? <laughs> well, I think you you almost answered the question, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, so there are a handful of these black tutors, right? It, the ones that have seen play in vintage beyond demonic tutor, of course, are yeah. Imperial Seal, Grim Tutor, uh, Death Wish, and Dark Petition. The ones yeah. that currently see play or have seen play in the last couple of years include Imperial Seal, Demonic Tutor, and Dark Petition. <laughs> and that, I, I guess you could put consultation on that. A demonic list, consultation, kind of. yeah, it, it borderline, yeah. No, it's true. Yeah. Um, so the question is, you know, is it worth the additional mana to have the flexibility to be able to go into your cyborg? The problem is that Death Wish is no longer the card it once was. You used oh, yeah. you used to be able to get cards that were exiled or removed from game, as it used to be called, <laughs> um, and um, or cards in your sideboard. Now, the way Death Wish works, you can only retrieve cards from your sideboard. In fact, with Death Wish, it went even further than that. I remember, Kevin, you might recall this. You could actually Death Wish for cards that were faced down by a memory jar. But <laughs> and necropotence and necropotence <laughs> that you said that that is that you would set aside paying by paying life with necropotence. Right. The caveat was that you couldn't look at the cards and then decide. You had to pick one at random. <laughs> which, is, which is comical. It is. Okay. It really is. So the scope or range of targets for this card is much narrower than than uh, Death Wish used to be when Death Wish mm-hmm. saw play. So, narrowly speaking, is it worth it to have a card that can search your sideboard and library for two more mana than a Demonic Tutor, and one less mana than a Dark Petition, but getting into your sideboard as well, but also not generating the three mana that Dark Petition do- generates when you have, right. when you have um, what's it called? Spell Mastery. Yeah, Spell Mastery. Um, given the fact that Grim Tutor sees, I think, no play in Contemporary Vintage. and I haven't seen it for quite a while that I can recall. And Death Wish certainly does not, <laughs> since Grim Tutor was in at least in the last since the since M10 is just far superior. Um, it's hard to imagine this card would see any play. So is a modal demonic tutor slash Grim Grim uh, sorry uh, Death Wish better than I don't know Dark Petition? I, I would couldn't imagine that it would be. I mean, one of the reasons for that is that Burning Wish exists right now and can get most of the cards that you great cards that you would want from your sideboard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know. Anyway, it is nice to have another card that can search through your sideboard, uh, but this mana is just very expensive. And in the black decks, in particular, the black decks that um, want to combo out, the efficiency really is a, a primary concern. Mm-hmm. That is, what you really want to be able to do is generate a ritual or two and a superfluous mox and be able to combo combo out as quickly as possible with Yogmoss will replaying the tutor into a tendrils. So every additional mana really makes a big difference. That, that's why 
dark petition really doesn't matter because it generates it functionally costs two with spell mastery so um four and yeah and it's synergy inherent synergy with storm right you're playing you play a ritual most of the time into the dark petition contributing to storm and reducing its cost overall that's it's a compounded synergy that this card wouldn't have as much because i believe the the primary benefit of having a, a straight tutor slash wish like this at four mana would be as if you could go landmarks ritual and cast mastermind's acquisition. Right. So, but that ends your turn and ex- you wasted some storm. <laughs> exactly. That was the last element I was going to draw out, which is that yeah. because of the expense, this is usually going to be set up for another turn as opposed to the intermediate step towards a, a strategic objective that turn, which means that. You know, just to put it in concrete terms, you're not going to be able to like do this for a Black Lotus to do something this turn in most cases, or a Yawgmoth's Will that you could play this turn like you would be able to do with Dark Petition, which means that in terms of where it might see play, I just don't see this seeing play in a Storm deck. And if it would appear somewhere else, it would have to appear someplace that would be both heavy black and could benefit from the flexibility. Um, you know, and the decks that, that like the Dark Times deck from years past, that played, you know, Dark Rituals and Null Rods and Lilianas and Dark Depths combo with Vampire Hexmage, I don't think we'd get a lot of value from being able to pull the sideboard, right? I mean, what are you going to pull in your sideboard? A, a Leyline of the Void? No. Uh, maybe a, a Yixlet Jailer? But that doesn't seem worth having, you know, paying additional mana when you could just play one or two Grim Tutors and get that on turn three and then play your combo on turn four, right? I agree. And that that makes me think of the structural ways in which combo decks are built, those that are built around 4x tutors. You alluded to Burning Wish, which is obviously the prototypical example. Burning Wish decks were structured the way they were because of the requirements of the Wish. It was very efficient. You you had a bunch of demonic tutors, but you had to put your Yawgmoth's Will and a kill condition in your sideboard because that's where you could get them with the Wish, right? It, It so happens that that interaction was also pretty busted with Lion's Eye Diamond, but that's true of any tutor effectively right right that was a critical yeah and then since we lost burning wish we moved on to death witch which is why we're making this comparison but it's not actually a very useful comparison anymore in the sense that tutor exists (laughs) (laughs) that's what i was gonna say grim tutor superseded and that meant that it was just far superior to have your yawgmoth's will and your tendrils in your deck so my point is is that the the model of how you construct these decks changed except for the bit of renaissance that that would certain burning wish lists happened in in the last two years since the unrestriction of burning wish but but dark petition has proved far more efficient than the wish model and you get right far more it just i wouldn't call them free wins you you get far more reliable wins by having all your win conditions in your deck (laughs) and your and your yawgmoth's will's main deck (laughs) exactly so as long as dark petition is unrestricted and can be played as a four of and uh, it's as you said basically in effect one mana cheaper than this the benefit of going to your sideboard from this card is almost certainly not going to override the increase in efficiency that dark petition gives you so i think we can both uh conclude that neither one of us will predict this sees any play yeah i agree i would be very very surprised if this appears anywhere can you think of a scenario at all or you would look at it and you'd be building a deck and you'd say, boy, I just want four, you know, two to four of this flexible <sighs> yeah. tutor. Well, that's what I was trying to inch towards, right? I was saying, so let's set aside the Storm combo decks. Sure. And then you, you went on a kind of discursive uh, <laughs> exegesis on on the evolution of, of tutors in yeah. Storm combo decks. <laughs> um, 
I, I think that what you'd want to be looking for is something, number one, that has heavy black. Number two, has dark rituals. Number three, has probably a lot of combos like dark times type combos, you know, two card yeah. combos. But number four could make great use of accessing the sideboard. That is, has a, probably a lot of singletons or situationally valuable, useful cards that it could benefit from. But Dark Times is not such a deck. Dark Times decks are full of like Leyline of the Void type cards or Sadistic Sacrament. Right. So you'd really want to get a full kind of two bo- toolbox out of the sideboard. And I just think even if you were to design a kind of Dark Times type deck, this is just outside the the reliable curve. Yeah. The closest thing I can think of are the old four, three or four Burning Wish control decks, those keeper variants. Yeah, there you go. That, that's the kind of that's right. the model. But but the, part of the reason for that was because Burning Wish was so efficient. Right, and four mana to get a that. fluster storm is not worth it. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good good example. All right, yes, I'm confident in the the double zeros on this one. Next up, we have Merfolk Mistbinder, blue green creature, Merfolk Shaman. Other merfolk you control get plus one, plus one, and it is two, two. So this is very, very similar to one Lord of Atlantis, <laughs> except it does, right. obviously it doesn't grant the island walk, but it's, it's right. otherwise it's effectively Lord of Atlantis for blue-green instead of blue-blue. This is an interesting card. Um, there are only, I don't know how many, but three or four quote-unquote merfolk lords in existence, right? There's Lord of Atlantis, Coral Helm Commander, Yep. I think there's another one. Do you remember what that one is? Yeah, there's the Marrow Regery. Yeah, Marrow Regery. That yep. and by Lord we mean a a creature that gives other Merfolk plus plus one plus one. Now, only two of those three cost two mana, right? So this would be a new one. And it, it and it would cost costing only two mana is quite quite important. Um I recall last year, Kevin, when we reviewed Deep Root Champion, I I wondered whether Deep Root Champion being a Merfolk and Green would incentivize merfolk decks to branch out into green. Um, you know, merfolk benefit, I think, not insubstantially from having a pretty rock-solid mana base that has lots of basics, but they also rely a lot on non-basics. I mean, we saw when Joel Lim won the Vintage Championship, he had four Cavern of Souls, in addition to, uh, you know, Wastelands and things like that. Um, and, and they sometimes play with um, Mutavolt, um, which, you know, the Lords can boost. Um, so here's here's how I would start the analysis of this card. Number one, there are only a handful of lords, and this is a new one. If you're playing a merfolk deck, that's a pretty big reason to want to play this card. The obvious question is, would the merfolk decks want to splash green? I think that the cost of splashing green is pretty low. Second, secondary colors are pretty low, especially you get a lot of benefits out of green. I mean, you get, if you want it, cards like Nature's Claim and things like that. And you also, of course, can play Deep Root Champion if you want. I think the larger question is, let's just take a stock merfolk list. What would you cut? There's this one guy on Vintage, on Magic the Gathering Online, who always plays merfolk. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. His, his, his username handle. I think you're, talk- but I think you're talking about Uncle Rico. See- <laughs> yes, Uncle Rico. Every time you play him, you know he's playing merfolk. If, if Kevin, if you pulled up one of his latest lists, you might be able to see um, where well, this card I- might fit. And that I, be- I, well, the first thing I see is that we forgot one of the two mana lords because Master of the Pearl Trident is is sorry, Lord of Atlantis the, so clone. Four. When there's, you and I both forgot it, and then of course there's the Phantom uh, Phantasmal yeah, right. image on top of it. But there's so there's four lords, and then three of them are yep. two mana. Uh, one of them yep. is three mana, which is the what the Mirror yes. Regere, and then this would be another two mana one. Um, and they all have you know differences, sure. slight differences, as you said. Some of them grant Island Walk, which is actually <laughs> yes, very important. Yes, absolutely, it is. <laughs> 
and some of them and and then some of them have other benefits well, too absolutely. right absolutely the um well the coral helm the coral helm for the commander Rigeri. for example is just a much larger creature so it's a lord that's also a big creature and then the regery has this tap and untap right. ability tied to casting merfolk yeah right tempo so some tempo right. advantages there um this creature is basically just the most efficient. It comes down on turn two, and the so there's a two-step qu- process. The first question is, if you're playing Merfolk, where <laughs> would you fit it? And the second question is, does it make the Merfolk deck substantially better, such that it justifies the right. green splash? So let's just try and answer the first question first, and then we'll do the more subjective question, second right. question after that. So Kevin, looking at uh, Uncle Rico's list from December 4th, he has um, his creature configuration is four true name nemesis, four silver gill adept, four master of the pill trident, uh, which is yep. a, a lord, four lord of Atlantis, four curse catcher, and one mirror regery. So it doesn't seem like he's maxing out on lords here. He has zero coral helm commander and only one regery. And, and looking um, at a prior version of his list from, let's see, October. He had a Coral Helm commander in the Regery slot, so he's c- clearly experimented with s- slightly different configurations. And the Master of the Pearl Trident is generally superior, not only because it's blue blue, but because it also gives your creatures your Merfolk yes. Island Walk. You wouldn't you wouldn't play this so new blue green one af- until you had four Lord of Atlantis and four Master of the Pearl Trident. And would you play it over Coral Helm Commander? Well, I certainly think that's possible from a mana efficiency standpoint because Coral Helm Commander is not actually a Lord until you've put. <laughs> four more colorless mana into it um so there's a, a chance there but if you're only running one <laughs> yeah but if you're only ro- running one coral hem commander yeah. slash mirror regere it's probably not worth it to splash green to completely reconfigure yeah, your mana i would base. agree and just, <laughs> just let me let it. me review though to your but, point the mana base for this most recent list is one delta a strip mine four caverns four flooded strand four wasteland and six islands so the operative parts being five fetches, six basic islands, and four cavern of souls. Yeah, if you if you put in four tropical islands, you would have, I mean, plenty Absolutely. of access to green. <laughs> well, Kevin, uh, Joel Lim's vintage championship deck from 2013, just as a kind of historical footnote, if anything else, his his creature configuration is four curse catcher, four lord of Atlantis, four master of the pearl trident. Three Mirror Regery, three Phantasmal Image, four Silver Gal Adept, one Waterfront Bouncer, and only one True Name Nemesis. And I think we can safely say that part of the reason he only had one True Name Nemesis is because, as you may recall, the Commander 2013 came out literally two days before the event. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, he, and he probably couldn't pick up any more. It might have been Certainly didn't have time to test it. But, but we would certainly run more. Randy Bueller's Merfolk deck from the Vintage Super League, its configura- creature configuration was four Curse Catcher, four Lord of Atlantis, Four Master of the Pearl Trident, four Silver Galadep, four Trunian Nemesis, and three Phantasmal Image. So zero Regery and zero Coral Helm Commander there. Does not seem like there's room for this card. Or, you know, there, there needs to be here. I suppose in Joel Lim's list, you could make a case that he might have wanted his three additional lords to be two mana. Right, the but that is, but the But the most common Merfolk player here, Uncle Rico, appears to only be interested in one more lord because he's maxing out on true name nemesis these days. So right. the use case, so let me let's let's put it a different way. Does green get you anything else? Well, I already mentioned the fact that it could get you cards like nature's claim. Yeah. But it's I'm not I don't really know how much Merfolk cares about shops. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. It's hard to know. 
<laughs> Let's look at Uncle Rico's latest sideboard. One Arcane Lab, two Energy Flux, three Graft Digger's Cage, a Hydroblast, one Caracas, two Mindbreak Trap, one Pithing Needle, one Steel Sabotage, one Thorn of Amethyst, and two Tormod's Crypt. You the only easily- candidate for a yeah. green card there, I think, is uh, is Nature's Claim over Steel Sabotage. Well, it's hard to know, but you could imagine him saying, you know, I'd rather have like four Nature's Claims over, say, the two Energy Flux and yeah. maybe even, you know, the one of the Mind Break Traps or Pithy Needles. And, yeah, and or the Hydro this, Blast, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. And the Steel yeah. Sabotage. But I think the more fundamental question is, you know, so, so the, yeah, the more fundamental question is, is it worth, is this card even valuable at all? Because if you're not going to play with it, not even one copy, and you're not splashing green in the first place, then you're not going to suddenly add nature's claims. You know what I mean? So yeah, to me, you'd yeah. have to run like two, three, three, probably three or four of this card before you'd want to start adding green cards into your sideboard. That's a good point. That's a good point. But if you did add green card green, then instead of Crucible of Worlds, you could easily switch to Ramat Rap <laughs> Excavator. Ramat Excavator. Excavator, yes. That's true. That's a good point. This deck, he's playing Crucible, and the Excavator might be a superior card in that event. Well, well the reason I say that is because it would, could be uncounterable with your second cavern. That's true. Absolutely. And it's a creature, so you can just beat right. down. Right. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's reasonable. That, that, it, I think that's a, a tactical upgrade for this deck. And you get but, to recur your Strip Mines and Wastelands, so... Right. Well, I am pessimistic about this op- opportunity, but I believe that it is certainly possible... And it, it might be that <laughs> people are attracted to uh, a, a version of Merfolk that has 11 or 12 two-mana lords. Right. Because there are certain games you can keep two-mana draws more readily, especially if your deck doesn't go above two at all, which there's I, a, a certain build that could, right? I think a more interesting and possibly revealing question on this card is, what creature could you design? reasonably designed that might be fitted into one of uncle rico's decks so if you were designing a merfolk oh the answer is clear it would be another one mana merfolk right but what i'm i think that's absolutely right so obviously if there was a one mana lord that would be an auto inclusion but that's that's not reasonable so let's just say let's take this that off the off the table a, a, oh, one I would mana, think a one a mana one, merfolk that had some kind of utility like curse catcher or yeah. some other disruptive element like uh like I don't know, land tapping, or I, I can't think of the example right now, but something that was also disruptive in certain matchups. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine a, a, a merfolk that can draw you a card that wouldn't that wouldn't be broken and isn't. Yeah, that isn't you know along the lines of Silver Galadep that wouldn't be a, wouldn't be broken. So it's hard to envision anything better there. Cursecatcher well, is kind of like a uniformly great creature, so it's hard to imagine something better there. But it could be in the mold of Cursecatcher, right? Right. I, I've um, got an example for you. Imagine, okay. imagine if the card, uh, I think it's Elvish Lyrist. There you yeah. go. That would be a sideboard card. Yeah. A kind of Elvish Lyrist sideboard card. So that's the kind of, I, I just, I just don't see a lot of design space unless you, unless you were like subtly improving the lords. So imagine if there was like a new lord that not only gave it, gave your creatures, let's say, you know, plus one, plus one in island walk, but also, I don't know, hexproof. Or um, um, what's that? What's that trigger that Kasali Pride Mage has again? What's that? Exalted. Exalted. Something like yep. that. It would have to be another uh, keyword mechanic type effect. You know that that 
boosted your creatures in some way. We, we, yeah. I could easily see a new lord designed that that boosted your creatures in a different way. That wasn't just power increase, a flat universal static power increase and island walk, but an right. additional thing. So, I, but I don't think this creature is that. Is what I'm trying to get at. I, I'm backing into that that conclusion <laughs> by trying to come at this from a different perspective. Right. Well, and there are a number of one mana fairies in blue, for example, that have various. It, they're flying or other kinds of evasion and certain kinds of drawbacks that you can turn into advantages. But they need to be merfolk. Yeah, but none of them are merfolk. <laughs> well, so where do you land on this? I, I believe that it is possible to construct a top eight vintage merfolk list with green that has this merfolk mist binder, and it's going to be very close modeled after this Uncle Rico list or Joel Lim's list of old. I just don't know if anyone will will truly do it. Well, let me ask you, Kevin, how many merfolks have top aided in the last three months or so? Well, let's see. In terms of lists, or, I'm sorry, environment tournaments that are 16 or more players, it's very few. The last merfolk top eight in a 16 or more event was back in September. Even Turns out there were two. There were two of them in September, but then before that, the last one was in June. So about. It's one or two few. every three months at this clip. Yeah. So we're do- either we're like due it. or it's disappeared. <laughs> you know, what's interesting though is that after having conducted this analysis, I'm more skeptical of this card than I was uh, sure. before we began. Because I just thought, you know, superficially, boy, a new lord for Merfolk <laughs> at two mana, that sounds exciting. But now that I actually look at these lists and see that they're not even using close to all the lords that are available. Right. Uh is this this card does not seem, in my opinion, to push Merfolk either into a new level of power or from the perspective of a Merfolk pilot or designer to warrant the green splash and the additional vulnerabilities it provides. Yeah. So I agree. Um I wouldn't be surprised based upon the the numbers that you just provided to see one or two, but I'm gonna have to say zero. Yeah. I agree completely with your summation. I'm gonna go with zero. If there is one, I mean, I think the absolute max here is two, because this does not, it's playable in this archetype, but it does not push this archetype in a new direction or anything. Exactly. Uh, so if it happens, it'll happen on a one to two basis, but I think it's a zero. But I think this analysis has been helpful, because it'll allow us to to know what to look for as we're scanning future sets for cards that might see play. We're looking for yeah. two mana lords that do more than the existing lore. <laughs> <laughs> or at least something or, u- usefully different. Yeah, or or a disruptive one one mana merfolk. Yeah, and uh, wizards R and D. If you're listening, that's how you get. That's how you print a vintage playable merfolk. It has to be <laughs> has to be better than a lord, or it has to be a one mana that's disruptive. All right, let's move on to thrashing Brontodon for one GG creature dinosaur. Uh, one comma sacrifice thrashing Brontodon colon destroy target artifact or enchantment. And it's three, four. So there are a handful of cards, creatures, that have these kind of built-in disenchant effects. Right. The, the trick is usually they're the white ones, the white ponies or Pegasus that destroy <laughs> enchantments. And then there's the, you know, the green creatures that destroy artifacts. But the ones that really have the true disenchants are like Kasali Pride Mage, Silvak yep. Replica, and Viridian Zealot. And all of those are either as efficient as this card or more efficient in in terms of overall mana cost. Yep. Um, if not in terms of activation and power and toughness. So I think 
you know, one way of approaching this card, that is one way of evaluating this card's possible applications in vintage is to start with its advantages or disadvantages vis-a-vis those three cards. But then you also have to ask yourself, do any of those cards currently see play in vintage? (laughs) (laughs) And I don't, I, I, maybe Silva does. Pride Mage has historically. I don't know if it currently does. And Silva does. Yeah. Okay. And Silva in, Rep- in Q4, I'm sorry, just want to quantify yeah. what you just said. In Q4, Quasali Pride Mage put up one, two, three, four, five, six top eights of 16 or more. That's that's not nothing. Yeah, that's respectable. And did Silvak Replica, which I think has a, has seen play before. No, it did not. So Silvak Replica, you know, we thought might be playable because it could be played off a shop, but it also just costs one mana to sacrifice it. It's just, it's a green mana. Um, but the fact that it's three colorless means that it can be played, you know, obviously it's much less, it can be played off-color off Moxon and things like Soul Ring, um, or even off of, a, you know, Cavern of Souls, so to speak, with the colorless mana. So the one of the um, things that you hinted at a moment ago was the efficiency of the creature, right? That this Brontodon costs more than all its contemporaries, effectively. The And I think the thing that puts the most pressure on that is all the targets for this disenchant type effect in vintage are very cheap we're talking about oath of druids which is a classic example but then the myriad targets in workshop decks which all cost less than this card and that is then amplified by the fact that they're artifacts so they're being played off of workshops in the ancient tomb this card matches up well if it were on the table against workshops creatures for example three four is a respectable body against workshops it's disruptive they would have to pile counters onto a ravager to to overcome it 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 trades and survives with a precursor golem token for example three four is a good body the problem is is it comes down two to two and a half turns later than all the creatures it's trying to fight and so it's going to be overworked you're going to tap out with to cast it against shops and then it's just going to have to block and then it's either going to die to a large ravager because they'll have the time and the material to make a large ravager or they'll just move all the counters from whatever you blocked on to something else and kill you <laughs> by that turn. So the the fact that this is three mana trying to serve that disruptive disenchant role is a big difference between that and Quasali Pride Mage. And you don't get a lot of power advantage for the extra mana the resulted, yep. You know, because yeah. Viridian Zealot's already 2-1. Quasali Pride Mage is already 2-2 with Exalted. Yeah. So you know, for two mana, you basically can get three power. Obviously, not every deck can play green and white. But you make but, a fair I mean, point. You're Silvac not getting a huge body here. Is, You're just getting a, you know, well, a moderate three, upgrade. But um, yeah, it's, you don't really... Yeah, right. And given the paucity of instances in which any of those cards see play, um, you know, if you were going to play Thrashing Brontodon, you'd really have to answer the question, why aren't you playing with Viridian, Viridian Zealot? Obviously, the Zealot yeah. has an additional mana in the activation cost, but it comes down off of a Mox and a land on turn one or on turn two. When, when you really need yeah. that speed. I just don't think the Brontodon needs to apply. I mean, there are a couple of scenarios where you'd be happy to have a 3-4. I think maybe, perhaps the better comparison is to Manglehorn. Well, yeah, there's there's Manglehorn-type effects, right? There's the Viridian Shaman, Manglehorn, etc., right? Right, all of those. And Manglehorn is, what you lose is a point of power and two points of toughness, but you keep the body right? You get the effect immediately, so you save a mana, and in the case of Manglehorn, you get the you get the Kismet effect for all future artifacts, which means it has game against decks like Outcome or, or, or Combo, Storm Combo. So, 
right, think while right. you've properly compared the Brontodon and its its to its contemporaries, it really is fighting with Manglehorn these days. And I, I think Manglehorn wins that that comparison in almost every scenario. The only time it doesn't, I guess, is <laughs> if you're talking about something like a bug or Jeskai mirror Agreed. match. Where you just where, where there's no disenchant target that matters, and you just rather have the sweaty body. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the problem is that disenchants have become so efficient and yeah. and placed in almost every color combination these days. So you you know, yep. it, it black and green you get abrupt decay. In right. in green and red you get ancient grudge. You know, those, obviously those aren't disenchants per se, but they get pretty close. And then of course in white you get fragmentized, yeah. and in green you get nature's claim. So it's really there just isn't a lot of need for this, let alone space. Yeah. I, I'm I'm just going zero on this card. I just don't see the additional power really mattering at all. And even if this were, let's say, roughly equivalent to any of the cards we've covered, I think the other cards are just as good and, and would prevent this from seeing play. I would agree with you. I'm going to go zero at also. I just want to put an asterisk there and say if anyone plays this, I would say there's an 80 or 90% chance that it's a one of in bug with in the slot that Manglehorn occupies is the only place I could see having this card. Huh. And that's, I mean, that's a stretch, but if we see a one or a two appearances, my bet is that's where it'll be. Yeah. I mean, speaking of, of three casting cost disenchants, there's a still Trigon predator out there. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah, of course, <laughs> which compares pretty favorably to this. No question. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to Azor's Gateway for two Legendary Artifact. One and tap. Draw a card, then exile a card from your hand. If cards with five or more different converted mana costs are exiled with Azor's Gateway, you gain five life, untap Azor's Gateway, and transform it into Sanctum of the Sun, Legendary Land. Tap, add X mana of any one color to your mana pool where X is your life total. This is going to take us a minute, I think, Steve, but so on the front side, you've got a two-mana artifact. Let's just take, let's cover some of the basics first, right? A two-mana artifact is imminently playable in Vintage across multiple archetypes and in multiple scenarios. An activated ability is also imminently playable in Vintage. It takes one to activate, but there are plenty of comparisons for that. We needn't belabor that. The ability itself draws you a card and then you exile a card, so it's a loot. And then if you, if you, if you hit the mother load and get five things looted away with this with different mana costs or converted mana costs, excuse me, then it turns into this land, which provides you theoretically gobs and gobs of mana. I, I think all of the baselines for this effect are somewhat met in terms of vintage utility. The cost is there. The activation is fine. The effect of looting is played like say Jace Friend's Prodigy and others. The land is unprecedented, of course, and we can talk about the utility of it there. But I just find myself wondering the condition. It all seems to hinge on this condition of the flipping requiring five different converted mana costs. That's yeah. that's huge. Yeah. There, yeah. <laughs> so there's three points I'd like to focus on. The first is what is the value of the flip land? That that's one thing we sh- we need to discuss. Yeah. The second, uh, the, the pertain to the the as as or as gateway, not the flipped card. The second and third. The the second is. Um, that um, <laughs> yeah. it takes no less than five turns to get this to flip, which is an eternity in vintage. <laughs> number number three, third point is, even though this loots, yeah. you aren't necessarily going to be looting like you do with Dak Faden, where you get rid of the least or you know the least important cards. 
the fact that you are trying to actually diversify the mana cost of the card right. you flip will frequently mean that you're not exiling the least valuable card, which means that going back to the second point, if you don't have five full turns to use this, um, you get halfway through it, and right. you haven't optimized each loot, there's a tension there that works at cross-purposes. You may never get to that. <laughs> so I just think the second point is totally disqualifying. I think that taking five turns is just far too long yeah. to I- expect this to ever flip, let alone not be destroyed, removed, or whatever. I think that's... T- and But going back to the first point, I, well, you know, if you had a land that, you know, five turns from now could tap for 18 mana or 15 mana, what do you, what difference does it make? What are you going to do with it? <laughs> well, I'd like to respond to your point about the the time issue, because while I do not disagree with you, I think there are at least two points to be made. One is that it's possible to cheat the time metric on this card in at least two ways. Okay, I can think of three ways now that I've mentioned it. Um, the first is you can activate this card more than once in a turn via Voltaic Key. So sure. You can cheat the time metric that way. The the other way or is Tesseract. that you can co- yeah. sure sure sure. The other way, the second way is that you can copy this ability. So you could use something like Rings of Bright Hearth to put multiple um, executions of the instructions basically onto the stack and thereby get more cards imprinted here. And the third is a little bit nefarious, but you can put cards under this thing, and by what under I mean you can exile them that have more than one mana cost. If you put a Wax Wayne under this card, then that single card has two different yeah. mana costs. Now, Wax Wayne's not a vintage card, but I used it because Fire Ice doesn't meet that <laughs> doesn't meet that criteria, unfortunately. Because they both have two, yeah. Yes. Um, but, okay, a better one would obviously be Wear and Tear, right? Right. You put Wear Tear under here. And that's, you get that one counts as two. two mana costs, yeah. So, so I don't believe any of those shortcuts actually undermine your overall point, though. I just wanted to add them for completeness. Sure, sure. I mean, it's not to say that there is one more subtle condition, which is that a deck needs to actually have a sufficient diversity of casting costs to <laughs> have five. But there, you know, vintage decks usually have zero, one, two, and then many have three, and almost you know a lot have five. Yeah. So, <laughs> but so they're likely to, your, to be just enough. Yeah. To your point, though, it's possible to have a hard time even with multiple loots finding that one missing mana. Card, right. Even. Like the zero. Well, no, zero is going to be easy because oh, land. Yes, good point. The hard, the hard ones are going to be three and four in, in a lot of decks because decks are so heavily tilted towards zero, one, and then five. So I also think that you could get five activations of this thing under your belt and still not transform it, which would be really awful. But I'd like to just join what you said ultimately regarding the results of this whole activity, and that is the Sanctum of the Sun providing you a bunch of mana. After you've spent so much time and energy doing that, there's, there will be many cases in Vintage, especially in the kind of decks that would play this card, where you no longer have any utility for 10 mana. You know, a land that had just been in play all along and was tapping for one every turn would have been much better in many cases. You could make the case that this is kind of like a Jace Vrin's Prodigy that you can play in non-blue decks, right? <laughs> you could call this a JVP that you put into shops, <laughs> allowing you to just loot away a land every turn. And That's true. There, are, there are certain games that that is valuable. It's, it's quite efficient at doing that. Short of just tapping, it's actually it's about as efficient as it could be for that effect. But well, before you I, got anywhere near close to flipping this, a, a, a revoker will revoke this. <laughs> or a spyglass. I would posit, that's true, I would posit that in that scenario, your goal is not to flip it anyway. 
your goal is to just Loot. draw two cards a turn Fair and discard enough. one of them. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty efficient at that. So that's something. That's not nothing. It's, it's a loot effect that you could play in shops. It's, it would, ha- I think it would have had more of a place in the older school, slower prison style shops, especially in a Forge Master list, right? If you could get a couple of activations out of this with the Forge Master deck and then sacrifice it to the Forge Master, that would have been pretty fun. But those days have passed. So, I- yeah, I suppose that, I suppose the one use in that case is you could play a huge walking ballista <laughs> if you flipped it. <laughs> that's that's fair. That's totally fair. So I when I first saw this card, my first instinct was, what does a blue deck want this? Because it's a loot, and that's valuable. And I, I wasn't sure if there was any good use in modern vintage blue decks for the, all the mana. Well, you've just hit upon the real home, and that is the workshop decks are the decks that can actually make use of X mana better than any other deck. I, d- I genuinely don't think that's a, a serious mark in favor of this card. Oh, no. But it is it is at least an application, and it's a, a person could reasonably play this card on turn one in addition to another creature, right? Workshop, Mox, Ravager, Azor's Gateway. <laughs> Go. <laughs> and then just loot a little bit, maybe sacrifice it to the Ravager for value, but get, get extra lands out of the way. I don't know. And then in that one out of a million situation where you actually flip this thing on turn six and then cast a, a ballista for 10 to end the game, that'd be funny. I, I really don't think that's going to become any kind of a standard, though. Steve, do you think any of this promotes you to go higher than zero on this card? I'm trying to envision what would what would be required. Um, this card would have to flip. and even Even if this card flipped into a card that says tap, win the game, I, <laughs> I still don't think it would be good enough. So. Yeah. And ultimately, except for the workshop application, all of the looting aspects of the card, just in terms of their value, are competing with Jace Friend's Prodigy, which is no competition, right? It's not even close. JVP is such a better yeah. card. I mean, I mean, this format is just rife with Ancient Grudge, Abrupt Decay, you know, I mean, like Frexian Revoker, yeah. you know, right. that type of thing. This is just by force. This is not going to see play. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to go zero. Next, we have the Immortal Sun. For six, Legendary Artifact. Players can't activate Planeswalker loyalty abilities. At the beginning of your draw step, draw an additional card. Spells you cast cost one generic less to cast. Creatures you control get plus one, plus one. There is a lot going on here. Yes, yes there is. In fact, there's four different things going on. (laughs) (laughs) Well spotted. <laughs> so I think that we need to break break those elements down to begin to analyze this card. So the first is we can call the first is actually entirely novel. So far as I'm able to yeah. tell, there is no instance of a card in the magic the vintage magic card pool mm-hmm. that says players can't activate planeswalkers loyalty abilities. It's like uh it's like Revoker Storm. Yeah, for all <laughs> for all planeswalkers. <laughs> The second ability is actually quite common in the artifact card pool yep. within the vintage card pool. Oh yeah, um, you know the the older heads will remember a grafted skull cap, but there's oh, yeah. bottled cloister, staff of Nin, and then of course you know cards like Frexian Revo- uh, Arena, which have a similar effect. So there's the ones that do it in the draw step and the ones that do it in the upkeep, yeah. um, but they all just and you're just talking about the non-symmetrical ones too, right? Just yeah. exactly, um, and. Um, you know, those many of those have seen play in the past or contemporary, contemporaneously. Staff of Nim saw play in parts of the last decade. Craft Skullcap before that. Um, coercive, coercive Portal is the most recent version of this that's seen play. Yep. Um, Rich Shea played Coercive Portal two years ago at Champs, right? That's right. 
That's a good memory. Yep. Um, the third one is, of course, just Stone Calendar. You know, <laughs> there's and there's been, you know, aside from Stone Calendar, which is an antiquities artifact that costs the it's same as the this, six mana. The dark, I'm sorry, the yeah. dark that reduces all of your spells by one mana. Um, there are different variants of this. Then there's a symmetrical version of that, like Helm of Awakening. And then there's a variety of ver- ver- variants that reduce specific color or spell costs. So like Baral, which reduces the cost of incense or sorceries, or the medallions, which reduce the cost of, which are artifacts that reduce the cost of uh, spells mm-hmm. of a particular color. And those medallions, of course, saw play and extended in a variety of formats. And don't forget um, Foundry Inspector. And Foundry Inspector, which does it just for artifacts. So um, that kind of effect has yeah. seen a lot of play, but um, there haven't been, quite frankly, a lot of just uh, stone calendar type effects, where just no. all your spells are one less, <laughs> which is kind of funny because there's so many different sphere effects out there. <laughs> that- yeah, it's surprisingly uncommon, actually. Surprisingly, right. Yeah. And then the last thing, last but not least, that this does is it's a it's a crusade effect for all of your creatures. So uh, four different things. Um, you know, it's funny to me how every one of them is an example of a of a commonly played or recently played workshop card. It's a combination of Revoker, Bottled Cloister, Foundry Inspector, and Chief of the Foundry. <laughs> <laughs> right, Chorus of Portal. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, You're right. Elements of these all exist in current workshop decks. What this reminds me of is when when we have podcasted and done set reviews in the past, Kevin, where we'd look yeah. at charms, you know, yeah, the, the modal cards, or uh, you know, where you have a combination of effects that are thrown together on one card. It really does change the analysis because it's no longer you know a strict comparison mm-hmm. to existing cards. It's you kind of have to look at the synthesis and say, does the situational utility. The analysis really does come down to, is the sum greater than the parts? Yep. And I think that's really what we need to analyze here, because this does sit at kind of the top of the curve of what vintage artifacts generally, sure. frankly, see play at. I mean, Staff of Nim, yeah. Staff of Nim did several things, right? It, it immediately picked off your Pyromancer or Dark Confidant, <laughs> right. but also drew you a card. Yeah. And it was quite good at those things, you know, but it didn't see play because it drew you a card. Yeah. It saw play because of the... <laughs> You know, the first thing. So um, it's it's a very difficult thing to evaluate because you don't really know where the metagame is going to land and players' judgment of the metagame is going to land in terms of evaluating the sum of the parts type thing. I I have a, f- a funny angle to to approach this card from, and, and maybe we don't start here, but I want to put seed it in your mind, and that is, this is a legendary artifact, and I'd like to at least touch on the notion as part of our analysis, because I think it might help reveal some things, is to, if our analysis would be different if it wasn't legendary. Hmm. That's a su- I just want to cede that to you, and I don't expect you to answer it here and now. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, subtle, dis- subtle point. Um, so, you know, I, I, I appreciate the point that you made earlier about this, this currently seeing these elements existing in contemporaneous workshop decks, but the observation that you and I have made a lot about workshop decks of late sure. is that they're very low to the ground, that workshop decks are really focused on kind of bursting out of the gates as quickly as possible, emptying their hands, and then building from a a board, right? Where you build either because you're using Steel Overseer, or you've got a a walking ballista in play that you're you're adding counters to each turn, or you're using using Arcbound Ravager to, to ramp up, and you're just trying to unload your hand. Now that, uh, frankly, Lodestone Golem is restricted. Um, you know, the workshop decks, they really top off 
I don't know. Where do they top off, Kevin? At five? Four? Yeah, well, that, they top off mostly with sideboard cards. Yeah, either yeah. being five or six in the Precursor Golem Worm Coil Engine world. And a lot of people debate one of the values of Precursor Golem being that it's only five mana, right? That's a very a very relevant... Yeah, it's expensive. That it is five mana. It, well, it is five mana, but yeah, the fact that Worm Coil Engine, I believe, is a superior effect, and you would always want Worm Coil if you got the choice. But the difference between five and six is a very relevant difference, especially to the Workshop Mirror. Well, well, we also made the point in our in our analysis of the Eternal Weekend Top Eight was that was that some of the players were making the choice to abandon all of that altogether. I thought because they're just too expensive. Yeah, that's right. Not everyone even had one of those, and most of the main decks, which you just alluded to, have a single four drop, and then the top of their curve is legitimately three. Yeah, right. And- Sorry, I just want to point so out one that, more supporting yeah. point in this case, and that is, I said it at the time, that my VSL Finals Workshop Mirror match with Reed was was very elucidatory of the ins and outs of the Workshop Mirror, and one of the features of many of those games is we would just go back and forth wasting each other. You know, the player on the play, their primary advantage was getting to tap their lands for mana <laughs> before they got wasted. Getting up to right. five mana was the right. exception, not the rule, right? And playing playing from just, you know, one exactly. ancient tomb and a mox for multiple turns was standard fare for that mirror match. Now, obviously, not all matches are mirror matches, but I just want to point out that this card, which on its face might seem amazing in a workshop mirror, like it does so much that you want to do. It doesn't have the effect, the immediate impact that a worm coil engine does, and therefore could be a liability in that kind of context. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. So the in the main, the workshop archetypes bend towards these hyper aggro versions that are very low to the ground, which I think renders this card the wrong time at the wrong place, or the wrong <laughs> place at the wrong time, if you will. And I think in theory, this is a vintage playable. I mean, Staff of Nim has seen vintage play, but yeah. because the workshop decks right now bend towards these really aggressive variants. I think this card yeah. suffers tremendously. And I want to I want to deal with I want to make that point in the context of each of these different elements. So the stone calendar element, which were the cost reduction element, has its least amount of value because it's the most expensive card you have. Yeah, it's at the top of your curve already. The top of your curve. Whereas, you know, with Foundry Inspector, you played on turn one, you get the cost reduction immediately on, on all the next your next plays. So that's a little, a little bit of disenergy there. Talked about when we were talking about the relative value and merit of restricting different cards in shops. In that Foundry Inspector's value is not that it makes a six mana spell cost five; it's that it makes four two mana spells cost one. And this is a prime example of that. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, um, so, so that's the first point I would make. The second is that we haven't seen. So you made the point that uh, the Rich Shea used Coruscant Portal in his in his uh, what was it 2015 Vintage Championship top eight, and we've seen Staff of Nim yep. type cards appear in the past, but but Jacob Corey's 2016 list didn't have any of that, and it was yep. a very controlling version. It didn't really play anything that cost more than four mana, frankly. I mean, he had Smokestack in, in four Smokestacks. His version of that effect was the Inventor's Fair, actually. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. He had four smokestack, but it was mostly just inventor's fair, and he only had one inventor's fair. Um, he had, at least according to this many, list, yeah, many of the old staff of Nindex would only have one staff of Nin too. Right. Right. This this would this this might have been really useful in the old days of uh, For- Forge Master, <laughs> yeah. although the Forge post 
postcards of 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 Mirrodin, this might have been really useful, but as a singleton. Definitely. But especially since that was Dak Faden's coming out party, really. And yes, absolutely. Not that Dak has really gone anywhere, but back then especially. Right. Um which which brings us to the 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 other two elements. Obviously plus one plus one is extremely valuable in, in the current workshop decks, but not very valuable in the in the more controlling smokestack list. Yeah. They don't they don't really care about this that much because they don't have a lot of creatures. I mean, I think it matters, but I don't think I think it's val it's value when you have you know steel overseer, ravager, and all that kind of stuff. In in a bunch of three or four creatures in play is just so much greater. This <laughs> this is the one effect that gets its maximum value by being at the top of your curve. This is the thing that you've deployed a bunch of smaller creatures in the intervening turns, and you slam this down and attack. Right, right. And <laughs> the the fourth part is very difficult to evaluate because it's yeah. completely novel. We have nothing like this. There's nothing in the magic card pool that does anything like this. So it's really hard to evaluate what the value of it is because we just don't know. The, the closest analog we have is just how we intuit how valuable it is to be able to turn off a planeswalker. Yeah. Um, now, you know, that could be quite valuable or it could be completely useless. And it's also interesting the spectrum that it's on with Revoker and Needle and Spyglass because Revoker is frequently frequently played proactively. It's played right. sometimes on turn one, sometimes on turn two, and the workshop player who's playing it knows strategically which card is important to name, but they're doing it without true foreknowledge of that their opponent has it. Revoker comes down all the time on turns one or two, naming Dak Faden or Black Lotus, right? Sometimes others, but I think those are probably the two most common. And then the other use case for Revoker is almost almost exclusively Moxin, right? Right. <laughs> the other, you know, the other whatever 50-70% of Revoker's applications are naming whatever Mox they played. Yeah. So compare that to Sorceress Spyglass, which we also know gives you the free information, the total information I should say about what's in their hand at least and frequently names something in their hand, obviously. Sometimes it names a strategic element that's not, of course, and those things are probably very frequently um, Dak Faden. This card is, to your point, is novel, but it's going to be novel in its position inside of games in that it comes down at a point in a game and plays a role that none of those other cards can play. It's kind of like a cleanup hitter, right? You've disrupted them with a revoker, and maybe you've got a revoker on deck out of necessity. Maybe you've played a sorceress spyglass mm. early on, and it, it was on JVP or a, a, a fetch land because it was disruptive. This thing down comes down, and it just bats cleanup on so many of your problems. How many times have you played a revoker, and you said, "Well, okay, it's, this really should name Dak because that's the worst." But boy, I'd like to name I'd like to name JVP or or Jason the Mind Sculptor just in case, right? This thing just comes down and says all those Jaces. Obviously, JVP can still tap, but you, you get my point. I th- so many Oath players are going to look at this card and think, "My word, this sh- just shut off you know two or three of my strategic paths to to winning this game." Because those decks, for example, are so heavily laden with 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 uh, Planeswalkers as their as their paths to staying alive or winning in shops. It's it's just it's going to be really interesting to see the way this flows inside of a game. Because having this card in your deck, much less in your hand, powerfully influences how you deploy your revokers, for example. That turn one revoker is far more incentivized to name Black Lotus when you know that in a turn or two, you've got the Uber revoker coming down. And I think that that if this card becomes widely played, that that workshop players will gain a certain flexibility, which is subtle and powerful. 
and might not be quite obvious up front exactly how it's manifesting in games. And if you have a foundry inspector in play and a workshop, this thing is not terribly expensive. It's not a backbreaking play either. No, that's you it's, can it, like I was saying about the non-workshop mirror games. It's totally reasonable to play this off workshop ancient tomb mocks on turn two. That that will happen, and you don't even want to play it on turn two. Yes, it's it's, right. it's awesome to get it into play quickly, but you'd be happy to play this on turns three through five, and it's still going to be quite good. No. You can spend your early turns disrupting and playing more broad creatures, that kind of thing, and then you right. s- slam this down, no, I agree with get the that. crusade effect, and then the, the game just goes... If, if they can stop you, the game goes that much longer in your advantage because of the Howling Mine. So I guess in summary, number one, all the effects matter. They're relevant, and they're useful. Yep. Um, some of them are clearly analogous to existing cards. Some of them are novel and hard to, hard to evaluate. Um, the fundamental problem I see with the card is that it's almost antithetical to where shops are positioned at the moment. So it's hard to see this being used by the speed, low-to-the-ground shop decks that have performed so Mm -hmm. well. That isn't to say that shops won't be in, you know, that that will be the dominant shop deck going forward, but it's hard, you know, the the shop's variants have been driven by printings. Now, in 2016, they went into Eldrazi. 2017, they went into Walking Ballista. I don't see this fundamentally changing the direction of shops um, and therefore, I don't think this is going to see much, if any, play over the next couple of months. But it's certainly a card that should be added to the list of workshop playables and cards that you would consider, you you know, using if you're a workshop player in some future yeah. metagame. I, can we do a little bit of matchup analysis for how this card fares? Um, just, we can just talk about the most popular matchups, right? We've, we've touched on the mirror, but I want to get your real thoughts on the mirror. Sure. Let's Let's say you've just got... Yes, let's say you've got Andy Marketon's champs winning list in front yeah. of you. You're going to a tournament. You know there's going to be a healthy representation of shops. You know you're going to face the mirror the appropriate amount. Do you swap one of these in in your sideboard or in your main deck? I'm just been thinking just about the mirror. Well, yeah. No, I, I, would, I would run the cards. First of all, I would consider playing staff of nin before this okay even in the mirror because it can hit lots you know hit lots yeah lots <laughs> um, and the card drawing plus removal is for the mirror is probably it's at least comparative if not superior to two-thirds of these abilities or three-fourths of these abilities yeah right so just looking at andy's deck he has three precursor golems okay um would you play this over a precursor would i play this over precursor golem probably not that's reasonable i mean I- i'm not trying to put you on the spot i'm just Thinking about deck construction from a, a, a workshop player's standpoint. Well, part of the reason is because the precursor golem gives you distributed power. Oh yeah, there's there's good reasons for it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, this gives you distributed power also. So with with you know the steel overseer, there's there's that element. But I, I take your meaning exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does. It does. But much less. Yeah. <laughs> so think then about what's your worst matchup for shops in the modern metagame. It's probably oath. Modern oath is pretty bad. So do you want one of these in your sideboard against Oath? I think it's pretty close, actually. I think it's pretty close. And no, I don't think this really helps you that much against Oath, honestly. Because what you really care about is speed. How fast are you coming out of the gates, right? And yeah, yeah, you're going to get some draw out of this, and you'll disrupt their Planeswalker, but I don't think that really fundamentally changes the dynamic of playing threats and having them blasted by Ancient Grudge. (laughs) <laughs> while you try and speed overwhelm them. <laughs> That's fair. Nor does okay. it really change the post, post-board dynamic, which is about Graftigger's Cage right. and right. Caracas and things like that. 
Okay, well, that's fair. Or Ratchet then Bomb. I guess there are two things, two two matchups left that are interesting to me then. One is uh, Jeskai and its other uh, Xerox variants like Delver. Do you want this even do you even want this against them? I don't think no. you do. Yeah. And I and especially against Delver, I think I would take your point earlier and lean towards Staff of Nin. Yeah. Before I would want this. So then the last one I can think of offhand is Combo, and this is the kind of card you board out against yeah. Combo, right? Okay. So I think that I think your responses there to those four scenarios are pretty pretty useful. Telling. I think yeah, it's it's telling. I, I I was kind of excited about this card when I first read it and thinking, boy, this is four different places that you want to be in modern <laughs> shops. But I find myself wondering. There's one thing you said a minute ago which piques my interest, and that is that shops might not always it might not continue to push down this hyper aggressive path. We might see either through printings or other metagame shifts a bit of a retraction from that extreme end that we find ourselves in. And as soon as you start walking back toward that road, this card and ones like it become very attractive. And I'm not talking going all the way back to Martello or anything. I'm just saying that there's there's a point at which you don't play four steel overseers and, and all the hangerback walkers <laughs> necessarily and all the chiefs of the foundry. There's a point that's more mid-rangey from a shop's perspective than that. Where this kind of card is pretty awesome. I I, I don't know the, what you said about oath. I think might be the the nail in the coffin for me right now because I feel like you're right in that this this really doesn't factor it well fit well into your game plan against oath post sideboard right. at the moment. But I I just can't shake the feeling that I'm gonna look at I'm gonna look over at some local vintage um, <laughs> workshop matchup and see one of these in play and and see its owner being very pleased <laughs> you know because <laughs> it's just the sort of thing once you've got into the play you're like wow not only can i not remove that because i'm a workshop deck i mean i guess i can get my powder keg up to six but right but it's just all all your opponent has to do then is kind of just make one for one trades on board you know to do some chump blocking to save their life and <laughs> let the howling mine kick in and let the crusade kick in and whew, i don't know i believe people will play this i think is where i'm getting to and but will it appear in top eights? This gets me back, I think, a little bit to my earlier question about the analysis being different if this was a four of versus a one of. Because as a yeah. one of, yeah. it's super easy to just slop one Splash. in. Yeah. You could take one of those powder kegs out of the workshop sideboard, and yes, it's, it's a totally different card, and yes, it changes certain things, but it's just one card. It's the same way I feel like about thrashing Brontodon, right? Someone could just put this into their deck, and it it, it it's per, per, a percentage point difference the deck is still going to perform fundamentally the same and it's slightly better in some situations and i just think people are going to play it you know i don't have the data uh in front of me but i think the critical question is the ratio of kind of like aggro shops to control shops i could easily see this being played in the control shop deck yeah but i just don't know what percentage of shops are control deck control shops these days well to me to me that and and by control i mean non-stacks control wow well, what's an identifying card for that that type of list that you're thinking of then? Because we can look it up. M- main deck Sorcerer Spyglass, maybe main okay. deck. Well, that okay. So Sorcerer Spyglass in the main happened to, happened twenty times in my analysis. But that's because they're almost and all oath decks. It's almost all oath, yeah. yeah. But there was, let's see, there was one in Senegalia. There was an eighth place mud list that had main deck Spyglass, but that was that was a snare thopter list. I mean, that was still just an aggro deck with one spyglass in the main so that wasn't what you're talking about it's almost entirely oath it's 99 percent oath 
these main deck spyglass and, and the most common other deck is actually i think shop depths <laughs> but that's really rare <laughs> yeah no I, I i i'm i don't know i think this this is a i don't think that i'll tell you what i'm going to go on record i don't think this is going to see play over the next three months in a vintage top eight just because i don't I don't think we're in the era of control shops. Okay. Well, I tell you what, I, I won't belabor the point anymore. I'm going to go non-zero. I'm just going to say one because I think someone's going to do it. And I won't be surprised if it's a couple someones. I agree with you that it's not the standard. It's not going to revolutionize shops. It doesn't totally change any matchups. It's just a good, strong magic card that you can't play too many of. <laughs> and that'll be that, I think. All right. Next, we have Induced Amnesia to U Enchantment. When Induced Amnesia enters the battlefield, target player exiles all cards from his or her hand face down, then draws that many cards. When Induced Amnesia is put into a graveyard from the battlefield, return the exiled cards to their owner's hand. Before we start analyzing this, there are a lot of rules questions that arise that we should clarify at the outset. Sure, that makes sense. So let me think of some of the things I've heard about in discussions about this card. One is that each copy of this card that you play remembers exactly which cards it exiled, similar to Memory right. Jar. So if you play one of these and set aside or exile five cards, and then you draw another one and play it and exile four cards, each one of them will remember the specific set of cards it exiled such that if you remove one versus the other, you'll get only those cards back. Right. And that's also true if, for example, you play Induced Amnesia and you exile five cards. And then you somehow, let's say, paradoxical outcome, returning it to hand and yep. replay it, uh, you'll exile new cards while the cards that were originally exiled do not are gone forever and cannot be returned. That's a very good point. And also, the two triggered abilities um, that this card has, so one, one when it comes into play and one when it goes to the graveyard, are not directly connected, meaning that you can do the old Oblivion Ring trick and remove this before it first comes into play trigger has resolved, which would mean that the cards that it, re- it exiles with the comes into play trigger are subsequently gone forever also. Yeah. There's the, it's the old World Gorger Dragon trick. Yep. And- <laughs> yeah. So, obviously, it says this card says target player, so you can target yourself or an opponent. So if you want to try to disrupt your opponent in some way, then you can do that to just them. For example, if you have Leovold in play, then they exile their hand and draw zero, which is nice. Brutal. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I take that back. They're going to draw one, assuming you're doing this on your main phase. They'll draw one from the effect. But it's a way to hurt your opponent if you've got Leo or Chains of Mephistopheles in play. Or Notion Thief. Yes, Notion Thief is a good example. So the old Notion Thief time twister or Notion Thief wheel trick works just as well with this card. Similar Dak Faden, of course. And what's more, the second triggered ability on this card only triggers when it goes to the graveyard. So bouncing it via paradoxical outcome, as you just mentioned, for example, doesn't cause the second ability to trigger. So just returning it to your hand won't get you the cards back, which is a super bummer because it would be incredibly synergistic with (laughs) paradoxical outcome if that were the case. So Kevin, when this was spoiled, you tweeted, this card might be a problem or is a problem. Yeah. What do you have in mind? I When I first saw this card, the first thing I thought of was comparing it to Windfall, of course. Now, obviously... This card doesn't have some of the most broken features of Windfall in that you can dump your hand and still draw new cards equal to whatever your opponent is holding. This card can't do that. So you can't go land, mox, 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 and play this and get a new hand like you can sometimes with Windfall. So that's interesting. 
This card is less powerful in that specific context. However, the thing this card does that most draw sevens don't do, in fact, no draw sevens really do, except for possibly jar, but we'll get, we'll get to that. This card, you don't actually fully lose access to the cards that you initially exile. Meaning, if you play this and then it goes to the graveyard, you get the old cards and the new. So in that kind of a context, you could just call this a straight up, you know, draw six or draw four or something. If you can construct a scenario whereby that is reliably the case, then this card becomes quite powerful in that sense. And then the other sense that I was thinking about when I tweeted that exactly was the fact that this card is effectively reusable because it's a permanent, because you can bounce it with Paradoxical Outcome. And even though you don't get your original cards back, you do get to have the effect again. Yeah. So it has many, many ways in which it is its effects are duplicative, meaning you cast it, or you put it into play and then sacrifice it or destroy it, uh, you get the cards back. That's just straight up card draw. You put it into play, bring it back to your hand and put it into play again, you get the, the effect again. So it's that element of being somewhat reusable that I thought was dangerous for a card that in many scenarios can be drawing upwards of three, four, five, six cards. Fair. You know, what's counterintuitive about the card from a design perspective is that typically in Magic, when you have a card that has the two CIP or the CIP and leaves play trigger, you, as as you already, you said that they're disconnected, but really they're not, you know, they, they're not the opposite of each other. So, you know, right. typically when something comes into play, something happens, and then when it leaves play, that thing is taken away from you. Like, for example, <laughs> Illusions of Grandeur, right? When it comes into play, you gain 20 life. <laughs> Right. When it leaves play, you lose 20 life. But what you were trying to say is that, that this card breaks that symmetry. That is, you, it, it's not, it, it's, it's not just when it leaves play. It specifically has to go to the graveyard. Yeah. Which is actually a huge bonus. It makes it a superior <laughs> card because otherwise all an opponent would have to do to prevent you from getting the new cards is to simply bounce it. Yeah. And bounce is pretty common in vintage. Right. So this card, it, it, this card has the potential to really capitalize and, and draw in a much more robust way, generate tremendous card advantage, such that if you can play the first one, find a way, you, you can play the first one, find a, a way that you get a second, and then a third, and so on and so forth. It builds on each other, much like Paradoxical Outcome. But also, if you have, can find a way to destroy your own induced amnesias, you can essentially double your hand size. So yeah. you can... You can go, for example, I don't, whether you're using Ray of Revelation or some very efficient way to, you know, replay and destroy enchantments, building into the, your deck. The, the card I had in mind is Aura Fracture, Kevin, which is an <laughs> yeah. enchantment that allows you to sacrifice a land to destroy an enchantment in play. Yeah. So you could imagine a card like that, right? <laughs> where, where you could just go off, right? Um, that's a good point. In a sense, you could Aura Fracture plus Fast Bond plus. <laughs> plus some amount of these could could be a powerful engine in, in certain contexts. Now granted aura fracture is pretty inefficient, but still Right. But that kind of effect. So you could yeah. you play induced amnesia, you draw a bunch of cards. Your immediate goal is to find another induced amnesia, much like right. with paradoxical outcome. Right. But in the course of doing that, if you find a kind of ray of ray of revelation effect, you can get success you know, you, you can then kind of cash in and get the double benefit, so you get you know the full the full uh, Monty, as they say. <laughs> so so to design a deck like that, you would need a good amount of artifact acceleration, much like our found 
and paradoxical outcome decks, Kevin. Right. But you need white or something like that to begin consistently destroying it. I suppose red elemental blasts work well as well. It work towards that end as well. You destroy yeah. your own enchantment once it's in play. Yeah, and that was another thing I thought of after I considered the matter, and that is that there's already a one-mana spell that's widely played in Vintage that destroys this. Now, <laughs> that's a mark both for and against it, right? Right. Uh, any blue spell in Vintage is the victim of, hey, the Pyroblast is, is widely played. So that's an issue that needs to be contended with for every blue spell. It gets a little worse, though, with this card, because... If you put this onto the stack against an opponent that has a Pyroblast or a Red Blast, you're giving them the choice of, do I want to just stop this spell from resolving, or do I want to give them the trigger and then blow this up and permanently exile their current hand? Because <laughs> yeah. if your opponent's holding one of those spells, so, they're going to have that choice. So, and so it's, unpack it's, all that happens, beat by beat, just so we're clear. Yeah, so you announce Induced Paranoia, and your and your, your Pyroblast-wielding opponent is, is has a crossroads. Co- counter-target spell or let it resolve with the Pyroblast. If they choose to counter it, then it just goes, it's fine, it's done with. If they let it resolve, though, they can put the comes-into-play trigger in the stack and then Pyroblast it, the permanent, while that trigger's on the stack. The leaves playability will resolve first. Which means you'll get your your cards back, but they haven't been exiled there yet. There are no cards. So you'll, you'll get yeah. nothing, and then your hand will just get exiled. Right. Now, you'll, you'll still draw a replacement hand, so you don't get totally blown out. It's not like a mind twist. Exactly. <laughs> but... But the point is, is you do still you, that your current hand will be permanently exiled, and there, Which, I can think of scenarios whereby your opponent might want to do that if they've seen your hand, for example, via Gitaxian probe or something else. They might believe that it's tactically adv- advantageous to let to just exile your current hand because you were expecting to get it back. Well, what they'd have to conclude is that your current hand is likely better than what is likely better than what you would draw off of induced amnesia. Correct. And or it what, contains a card that you can't win without. Right. And what I love about this card is that it's unlikely, very unlikely an opponent would do that and not just counter induced amnesia. I agree. That's very unlikely. So, and, But that's interesting. It, 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 if you can read your opponent for wanting that result... It can then, be very powerful. Yeah. Also, you, <laughs> you can game them by targeting them with the comes into play ability. Ah, yeah. At the end of the stack. <laughs> <laughs> then, then what happens? Which, so, well, so, then wh- they have the same choice, but they're not going to permanently exile their own hand, probably. So then they're like, "Oh, can I play anything else in response to this trigger, or do I just let it happen and get a new hand?" I mean, <laughs> there's a little bit of play there. Yeah. I, I don't expect that to be the standard by any stretch. I mean, that's that's well, humorous and possible, but not necessarily the the best. Well, well, the, I think the bottom line is from a design perspective, this card has some built-in defenses. You yeah. know, we've just mentioned them. Number one. Yeah. Uh, you know, the kind of stack tricks, despite the simplistic design, the stack tricks allow you to take advantage of an opponent trying to trick you, trip you up. <laughs> yep. So there's, right? uh, gameplay is good. Gameplay is good. Number two, yep. you know, anyone inclined to like let it resolve, you're not going to be punished that badly, even if they do destroy it in response. Yeah. Right. So that's that, good. That, that, it's, it's, not that a, is, it's not a very high risk. Right. It's not a very high risk. And, um, right. And the fact that, um, you know, you get stuff back means that once you've hit a critical mass, then you can begin destroying these, and then you know, essentially, you get another way to draw to draw cards, meaning the cards that were originally in your hands. So this card, I think, it's 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 like Mind's Desire and Paradoxical Outcome. It's a critical mass card where once you resolve the really the second or third induced amnesia, you're you're getting overwhelming card advantage. 
And and the reason in this particular case is because you're going to be able to kick back, get a kickback, where you yeah. take a you take a uh, ray of evolution, you start destroying the ones in play. So I agree with you there. I I feel like this card has inherent dissynergies with certain strategies that are obviously common in historically in draw seven decks and in Paradox of paradoxical outcome decks, right? right? In particular, so many, yeah, so many of those decks are structured around empty your hand and then right. play this haymaker right. that either refills it or wins you the game. Right. In some and this sense, card can't do that. I was, I was going to say, I meant to say this earlier. In some sense, this is the opposite of windfall. <laughs> yes, in, in a sense. Yeah, it, it, you're incentivized it, to have a large hand right. when this trigger result. Right, yeah. so you get the most out of it. Um, so it has synergy then with things that increase your hand size artificially. A uh, classic example, of course, is Gush. Right. Yeah. This card is very synergistic with Gush. Similarly, this card has synergy, though. Um, you know, hear me out. This card has synergy with Paradoxical Outcome in the sense that Outcome fills your hand with both permanents that were in play and new draw, newly drawn cards. Now, obviously, there's a tension and a strong dissynergy to discard all those cards because they're your mana artifacts and you built your deck purposefully to replay them. But still, the synergy is there. If you outcome into an induced amnesia, you're going to be faced with some some choices as to do I replay all of these things or do I feed them into new cards? And choices are good. It it still might not (laughs) be right for a paradoxical outcome deck to play any of these. I, I, I fully accept that. But I'm just pointing out that anything that's filling your hand in an artificial or, or ad hoc way, like Gush and Outcome, do uh, have synergy inherently with this card. The the fundamental tension which you've alluded to but haven't stated is that <laughs> if you and I've stated, but I did it fleetingly, is that if you paradoxical outcome and return this, the cards that were exiled with the CIP trigger are gone forever. Yep. So if you were to play this with paradoxical outcome, there is. There's that disenergy, but there's probably a way to manage it. And the way to manage it is that you probably have to connect the linkages up very carefully, such that yeah. you induced amnesia, well, more likely, you play paradoxical outcome, <laughs> then you induced amnesia, and then you probably need to get another induced amnesia, and then destroy your reduced amnesias before you paradoxical outcome again. <laughs> uh, it's. I know, It's. I'm laughing because it sounds convoluted. It's not very convoluted. It sounds unreliable, <laughs> I would say, but I agree that that would probably be how you maximize the play well, of such a deck. Well, let me let me put it a different way. You can play induced amnesia and paradoxical outcomes in the same deck, yeah. but what what you do have to do when choosing a line of play is that you have to sequence them in parallel fashion. That is, you right. have to go, you have to tether together or chain link the paradoxical outcomes together or the induced amnesias, and then you pivot to the other one. Yeah. But you can't you what you can't do is go induced amnesia paradoxical outcome, induced amnesia paradoxical outcome. <laughs> right. It, at worst it's it's efficient inefficient, right? Right, at worst. You're but not, what you're, yeah, you're not converting resources very well. But what you want to do but if you do go, say, two or three paradoxical outcomes in a row and then pivot to reduce induced amnesia, or vice versa, it could be enormously powerful. Right. So 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 if you could do two or three induced amnesias and then paradoxical outcome. You know, as long as you busted the par- induced amnesias, it's going to be a huge paradoxical outcome, even if it's the first. <laughs> right. So, so all you have to do is figure out, you can chain link them together, but you have to f- pivot to one line or the other. Yeah, I would agree. It's like, I, I guess th- what it's like is, it, to, to finish my earlier metaphor, it's like jumping from two moving trains. You start <laughs> on one train, and then you jump to the other, and you got to take that one down the track a bit. 
before you jump back to the other. I think that while the Ray of Revelation example you used is apt and worth considering, I can't shake the notion that an effective induced amnesia deck is simply going to be a pyroblast deck. Absolutely. I think that you could put together a, a paradoxical outcome list that has three or four pyroblasts in the main and has a couple of induced amnesias, maybe not four. But I think you could put such a thing together such that your pyroblasts become draw spells when you when you want them to, in that in a sense. How good might this be with Painter? Think about what Painter yeah. is trying to do. Painter is trying to find a two-card combo. Yeah. You can just say, I want to ditch my existing hand and find the other half of the combo. Yeah. This I, might I think you might be onto something there. And also, this mana cost in particular it, um, promotes playing with Ancient Tomb also, which certain painter lists want to. Good point. So it, it's a way to cast this card while committing fewer cards out of your hand to produce mana. So yeah, I think that's certainly a possible home for this well, deck. I, I wanted to mention this earlier as well, but it is notable that, that almost none of the Paradoxical Outcome decks, with the exception of the Storm ones, run draw sevens. And that's right. because of the because of the point that we've made that you want, especially the draw sevens like Windfall. The, the Windfall, yeah. the reason Windfall actually works is because the combo <laughs> player empties their hands and then gets the advantage of Windfall off the back of their opponent's hand. Right. Um, that's not the case here. So this is not a card that goes with draw sevens, in my opinion. I agree. I agree completely. Also, I've already mentioned it, but there's the inherent synergy with Leovold, which is not to be ignored, right? If this is a serious threat, this is actually a, a larger threat immediately than even Dak Faden is, because at his best, Dak Faden is just discard two cards. This could take someone from five or six to just one. Yeah. Yeah, immediately. So it's worth considering. I I don't necessarily believe that there is a Leovold induced amnesia combo deck per se, but perhaps if there is an induced amnesia paradoxical outcome deck, there's one that has Leovold in the sideboard. Worth considering maybe. And Nature's Claim is quite good at destroying your own induced amnesia, too. Uh, we've talked about in the past a number of times how cards that are potentially powerful but require you to run other weaker cards almost never pan out. We've, I can't think of a specific example right now, but we've analyzed a number of these in our time. I don't believe that there is a, a 4x induced amnesia combo deck that just happens to run a bunch of its own disenchants. I, I don't think that this card is the backbone of a new archetype. I think it has enough synergy with the kind of effects we've discussed that it's worth considering adding on and possibly adjusting an existing deck. We've given a lot of outcome examples here, for example. Uh And if you can put together a deck where you can more reliably than not get the double uses out of this card, either disruptive or double draws, as we described, then you're on to something because that's pretty powerful. I'm, I'm not convinced that that is the new wave of outcome or anything, but I think this card needs to be watched and tested to those ends. Well, Kevin, um, I would just like to point out for our listeners, not to shame anyone, (laughs) but to remind folks that predicting these kinds of effects can be very challenging. Yeah. And to put that in kind of a, a, a clear light, I would draw people's attention to our September 2016 Kaladesh set review, where we began our, our analysis with an hour long discussion of paradoxical outcome. And Kevin, do you remember what we predicted? Yeah, didn't I predict zero or one? <laughs> yeah, you predicted zero, I predicted three. Yeah. <laughs> I turned out to be right, but and I think it ended up being like 10 or 11, because in the next three months, there just wasn't a lot of paradoxical outcome. Right. But there was a huge explosion after that. 
Right. And I say that, like I said, not to shame anyone, because I only predicted three, even though you predicted zero. Right. But because it's easy to underestimate draw spells that could be explosively powerful. Yeah. I mean, we both clearly articulated what Paradoxal Outcome could do, and we still didn't think it would see a lot of play. <laughs> right. You know, we, like I said, we spent an entire hour on it, over yeah. 60 minutes. And yet, so it's, it's not enough to understand what it could do. To predict that it will see play in a t- and then appear in top eights, we have to actually predict that it will perform well. <laughs> yeah. And to do True. that is another imaginative leap. It requires a bit of foresight in, in, a, in thinking about how something will actually be developed, not just what it might look like at first glance. And I don't want us to be in a position of, because something is unfamiliar and novel, underestimating it and then just being skeptical, because it's easy to be skeptical. Yeah. It's harder to say, you know, I think this thing has potential, um, but there's quite a range. <laughs> and so I just and- set all that up to say, we should be very cautious about predicting loan, a loan or zero number. And factor into that to players' perceptions of a card as a community. I mean, the in my initial response on Twitter, for example, was mostly negative. Uh, the first few responses I received were basically, this card just isn't card advantage. Which, if you simply put this card onto the stack and it resolves and you exile your hand and draw a new one, you're down one card. Right. So the baseline use for this card is, is only a, a looting kind of effect, a mass loot, right? Yeah, and there are a number of those cards at, few, at much fewer mana than this, or have other drawbacks or benefits. So, in order for this card to be anywhere near playable in vintage, you're going to have to be maximizing it in one way or another, getting repeat use out of it, or sending it to the graveyard to get your hand back. So, it's going to require some clever deck design and a bit of a paradigm shift in how such a deck is played. But we said the same thing about paradoxical outcome. Remember, it's you had paradoxical yeah. outcome require. A critical mass of zero casting costs, efficient artifacts. Yep. We, and we said, you know, that runs into what Workshops is doing and a whole bunch of other things. They really did require require a kind of paradigm shift in terms of deck construction, but it occurred. Well, it, it, the comparison, I guess, in that sense is undeniable. We're saying there, all this. We're saying very similar <laughs> things about how you would have to abuse this card. The, their critical, and, their critical mass spells. They can generate enormous card advantage when you when you design a deck around it. Yep. Um, overwhelming in some cases, but the the critical dividing line between the two is that paradoxical outcome is almost always going to be generating card advantage. This card does not necessarily always do that, yep. and it's almost always card disadvantage until you can start destroying the ones in play. So yeah. that that could be the difference that makes a difference. But boy, do you want to make a <laughs> bet against this card? I mean, <laughs> this card is. From my perspective, the marquee card in the set for vintage consideration. It's the card that's the most exciting. Yeah. Also, Paradoxical Outcome doesn't have a, a mirror image disruptive application. This card says target player. Right. And so it ha- it opens right. up a whole new avenue that this, Outcome simply isn't capable of exploring. <laughs> this has more tactical flexibility in some sense. Right. Right. I mean, we certainly talked about how Paradoxical Outcome could be used to save cards in play, like an Oath of Druids from Destruction or something, or a Time Vault. Right, right. And that's happened, that's true. but <laughs> <laughs> but we also talked about how paradoxical could be used with cards like Mentor, and yeah. uh, but we're in a very different space these days, right? Yeah. We're we're in a space where Oath and workshops, fast speed workshop decks are dominant. Um, in some ways, this card strikes me as m- more dangerous than Windfall being unrestricted, which we've advocated for in previous shows. Right. Windfall has drawbacks of people being mulliganing. Um, 
you know what it does against dredge. Right. This card, this card could just be better in a painter deck. And then if you th- were to be able to throw in something like Ray of Revelation, which could be really, really good against uh, Oath, boy, you could have a winner. <laughs> well, I don't know where that leaves us. Then I am. I acknowledge everything you just said. I am skeptical that this card is going to quickly result in a a, a popular and successful deck archetype. It's I acknowledge that it could be integrated into existing lists like Outcome or Painter relatively easily, actually. Not sure if that's going to be the long-term home for it. I guess I see this as a possible trajectory like Outcomes, meaning a slow burn to start with and then an explosion. Right. But I also feel like this card is easier to disrupt and fight than Outcome is, actually. Interesting. Ironically. I, I, I didn't I thought of this while you were talking earlier, but I didn't say it. This, in some sense, is harder because it can't be flusterstormed. Okay, that's fair. That's totally fair. You're right. And it obviously can't be misstep, neither can outcome, but yeah. outcome can be slowed by misstepping things like top. Right. Yeah, that's true. The fact that this is, is not susceptible to Flusterstorm is nice. It's basically Force of Will or Red Blast. <laughs> and if you're playing right. four missteps, boy, which you are, if you're playing this this card. Almost certainly. Well, I tell you what, at the risk of having the same exact outcome, so to speak, as the last time, I'm going to go with zero. I think it's not going to make a splash initially. I think the deck. <laughs> I think the deck is. I, I think the deck is too hard to construct and make good up front. I actually think it's harder to build the, this deck and to play it and make it work than it was to start with outcome. And I think that's saying something. But that's interesting. This, this I, is a really complex concept here, and I, I think a number of people are just going to not try. I actually almost feel the opposite of you. I think the reason I feel the opposite is because. Paradoxical outcome is extremely conditional and requires a lot of, you know, it's not that it's hard to figure out how to, to design a deck that can abuse paradoxical outcome, but I think it's hard to figure out how to design a deck that can perform well in the metagame. Mm, Whereas, because because you're fighting all these different things, right? I mean, on the one hand, you need to have a lot of permanence, which means that you don't have a lot of spells to win on the stack. You also, paradoxical outcome is just fundamentally bad against sphere effects. Yeah. So I actually think it's harder. I think paradoxical outcome is harder to figure out how to work into a metagame position. I think this deck is easier to work into a metagame position. Hmm. I think I think because it doesn't have so, the conditionality in the same way. It's it's pretty straightforward. All you have to do is resolve these in sequence and then destroy the ones in play. And and the 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 routes to doing that we talked about either a painter deck with lots of red blasts or a deck with ray of revelation type effect. That's Pretty, re- I think. Don't think that's terribly difficult to build, and I think it could actually be better positioned in the metagame than Paradoxical Outcome was in the fall of 2016. Because a main deck, both because I think Red Elm Blast is really, really good, but mm-hmm. also cards like Rare of Revelation are really, really good in the metagame. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it might actually be easier um, to both design and more importantly to metagame position than Paradoxical Outcome. So I'm going to repeat my prediction from Paradoxical <laughs> Outcome. Nice. I'm going to go three. <laughs> that's that's awesome. <laughs> Those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. it, it <laughs> the problem is it's hard to figure out how to apply that maxim here. <laughs> because, because in that case, I underestimated Paradox Calcum, but I, I won our contest. I, I was yeah. right. 
Well, I tell you what, more so than almost any other card in the last couple of years since we've been doing the show even, I'm kind of thinking I want to just punt on this card and say, I can't tell how the future is going to look on this card. I don't have a good feel for it. It seems like it's complex, as you put it, to to position. You were just saying it's, it's relatively easy to... to to I was, develop this deck at least initially right. conceptually I, right i was trying but to draw I feel like the play, design and positioning yeah yeah i feel like the play of this deck is going to be exceedingly difficult well, well that's what's <laughs> what you hold your pyroblasts for right. when you target your own induced amnesias versus their spells that kind yeah. of thing i i think though that whereas paradoxical outcome is pretty straightforward in that respect this card is actually advantaged over that because it gives you more play it's harder to kind of screw the pooch on this than it is on paradoxical <laughs> outcome you know paradoxical outcomes biggest trick is when do i play it and in the end it's usually on your main phase you know <laughs> like it never really ended up being something you played on your opponent's end step you know what i right. mean and i think the bigger and, and the reason i think it's so tricky is because it requires really a lot of insight and perception into the format an imaginative leap it's not okay. enough just to imagine how you design a deck it's not even imagine just to it's not even enough to imagine the next step which is how to position it in the metagame or how how it would be positioned, but it's the next step, which how might it evolve, right? Because it's a very easy thing to take. I mean, we could even, I think we may have even designed something on the fly in our Kaladesh set review. Let's throw in, you know, four Mox Opals and, you know, all these, and we actually did that. Remember, we like, right. let's throw in all the, like Grim Monolith, all this stuff. Yeah. And there are decks like that, but the ultimate best performing, the ultimate position or the best performing decks were, were not quite so extreme, right? It was like mm-hmm. maybe like 12 or 11, 12, 13 artifacts, including like maybe a Brian Kelly Sorcerer Spyglass or something like that, right? They, right. they weren't, they didn't just die to a null rod. They had game, <laughs> yeah. right? So that's the harder step, right? Not just how do I design a deck and how is it positioned and how might it perform in the initial stages, but where does it settle? Where's the ultimate landing place? Where's the yeah. kind of happy median? And I think that requires some really real prescience. And and we'll find out if I'm prescient or not. But I think this is gonna <laughs> I think this will ultimately appear in top eights. I could okay. be completely wrong, but <laughs> I reserve the right to be wrong as always. <laughs> but um I I feel like this has enough potential, like I felt about paradoxical outcome, that I, I want to reward potential. Potential well, deserves fair. being rewarded. <laughs> that's fair. And this card has potential in spades. Let's move on then to Blood Sun for 2R Enchantment. When Blood Sun enters the battlefield, draw a card. All lands lose all abilities except mana abilities. So the funny thing about this card is that when it not long after it was spoiled, there were there were some people who were trying to design cheat sheets for this card, meaning <laughs> right. they designed lists of lands that listed each land by name in one column, and then in another column explained how this card would interact with that. And the funny part is that those lists were riddled with errors. Yeah, They were mistaken up and down the line. Uh, and this obviously um, deals with some of the most complicated, nuanced areas of the rules, which is, has to do with layering, among other things. Yeah. Um, and I won't pretend to be expert enough to be able to explain every case, <laughs> um, but there is a general way of understanding how this card will work. And it's essentially lands with activated abilities, lose them, and lands with comes into play abilities, lose them. Right, Kevin? Um, activated abilities that aren't mana abilities. I that think are, is sorry, what that you, are not mana abilities, right. Right, is what you were alluding like to. Like Maze sure. of Ith or yeah. Library of Alexandria. But 
That, and, that's a good, that is a good, I think, rule of thumb, yes. And um, one of the, the trickier part is lands that come into play with as they comes into play abilities. Well, I think that is one particular area where a number of people got hung up, and, and I'm not a judge either, but I have read up on this topic, and part of the reason why so many people got hung up is that the rules for specifically the as this comes into play or this comes into play with uh, right. statements were changed a couple of sets back. It used to be that 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 those effects were treated as things that happened prior to being on the battlefield, and so they would still be in effect. So, for example, if a, a shock land says this comes into play tapped unless you pay two life, that in the past was considered to be something that happened before it was in play. Got it. And, and, and another the, one that comes to mind is gemstone mine, which comes yes, into play with three counters. counters. Yes. Yeah. That that rule was changed such that things that modify how something enters the battlefield now look forward in time to how the permanent would exist on the battlefield <laughs> and and consider that. It as anticipates them. And yeah, it yeah. anticipates that. So a land entering the battlefield under the blood sun would look and say, Oh, I'm gonna lose this ability, therefore I don't come into play with any of its conditions. So uh shock lands don't have the come into play tap text at all. Um a really powerful example is the all the bounce lands or the Kaurus from from uh, Ravnica that the, the Simic Growth bounce. Chamber, for example, yeah. they don't have the line that says they when come into play, play tap. Return. Yeah, and, yeah, and they don't have the the other line <laughs> that you just said. <laughs> wow! <laughs> so they come into play untapped with no drawback. <laughs> wow! Yeah, and that's because all those as they come into play or this comes into play with abilities look forward in time and see the Blood Moon. Now the the real the real killer is uh, Urborg, <laughs> and I can't explain this one in, in, in proper judge <laughs> detail. But but the simple truth is that type changing effects happen before the blood sun effect. Those kind of effects happen in the layers. So the type change happens, and then Urborg loses its ability. <laughs> so what you end wow. up with is a whole bunch of swamps and Urborg just being a swamp. <laughs> wow! With, without without the Urborg ability. Wow. That yeah, is counterintuitive. It, 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 it's really weird. It's it's counterintuitive. But the, but layers were developed because they had to have some solutions to these madness. Yeah. So Kevin, um, there are definitely some counterintuitive rules interactions here. But in general, in the main, <laughs> cards that as they come into play anticipate this card. Cards that when they come into play, if it's in the, if it's like when they come into play with something, they lose that static ability. Yep. And then any land that has an activated ability that's not a mana ability will lose it. Is that fair? Yeah, but yeah, it is. The best land, best examples from vintage context being fetch lands and waste and strip. They lose fetch lands lose their fetching ability. Waste and strip lose their land destruction abilities. And things like Caracas and things like that lose their yeah. And, their and non-mana. Bizarre Baghdad is is no longer yeah. Bizarre is a good all. example. It's just blank. <laughs> yeah, I and, tweeted. I and, tweeted a funny example because Dark Depths is a land that has no mana ability, like Maze of It, for example. <laughs> yeah. So with the Blood Sun in play, uh, Dark Depths just has no text at all, which is comical. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's funny because if the Blood Moon was in, or sorry, the Blood Sun was in play first, and you play a Dark Depths, it comes into play with no abilities. It's just a blank card that's type land. Right. If the Blood Sun leaves play while that Dark Depths is still in play, Dark Depths will regain all of its abilities It'll see that it has no counters, and you'll <laughs> and immediately trigger. sack it and make and make merit lage. Yeah, <laughs> so there's so you can disrupt them once to a degree, right? Because you can't right. thespian stage or anything to make merit lage while the blood sun's out. But there's this inverse synergy where if the blood sun goes, it triggers all the dark depths that are in play, <laughs> <laughs> which is funny. Um, 
So it's it's worth noting what happens when a blood sun leaves play, I suppose. So but so what happens? <laughs> yeah, so, that's not going to be very common in vintage. So what happens if you have an Urborg in play when you play this, and then someone casts Blood Moon? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you call your local judge. That's what happens. <laughs> okay, that was a joke. I didn't really expect an answer. <laughs> yeah, see, I, I cannot explain the, the interactions of Blood Sun, Blood Moon, and Urborg. <laughs> and it may it's depend on scope. which is played when too, because of the layering. Yeah, that's, I, I don't. I don't actually recall when timestamps come okay. into play either. But you're, I, you're right. It might be. It might be that way. Okay. So um, <laughs> that a lot of the cards in this set apparently require an, uh, a rules excursion before we can get to our analysis <laughs> of the card. But right. the, the immediate thing I want to draw attention to is actually not the main text. It's the fact that this replaces itself. That is really kind of surprising in my eyes. Yeah. Because this. Using Blood Moon right. as a model, you wouldn't expect this kind of disruptive right. enchantment to have self replacement. That's actually exactly. alarming in its its, its <laughs> generosity. <laughs> Very well put. I, 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 I agree entirely. I also think it's distorting of our analysis because the at least my mind wants to just in a, almost a parallel fashion draw comparisons between Blood Moon. Yeah, and yet that completely falls short because this replaces yeah. itself and. Well, That's such and, a powerful yeah. thing. And the, ultimately, the effect of this and Blood Moon being in play results in a lot of differences. So yeah. I, I agree that that comparison comes to mind quickly, but it, I think it also falls away pretty quickly in its utility. Well, what I mean is that, you know, we all have a conception of how good Blood Moon is. And yes. we might have a conception of how good Blood Sun, Blood Sun is at the end of our analysis. Yep. But then that completely changes when we factor in the fact that this draws a card. So. Yeah. Even if we were to say this is only 75% as good as Blood Moon, based upon its second sentence, it's then hard to say, well, is this actually worse than Blood Moon? That is, let me put it, frame it very narrowly for the moment. <laughs> and I'll just create a, a... Let's come back to this. I don't want to dive into this, but here's the question. Sure. Suppose there is... You're, you have a deck like you know, Blue Moon, right? Where yeah. you're, you're debating whether to play this card, Blood Sun or Blood Moon, right? Yep. And there's a variety of interactions for why you would do that. Right. Um, even if you were to say the second sentence is only 75% as good as Blood Moon, the fact that it replaces itself vaults Blood Sun ahead of Blood Moon. Yeah, I so, think so. So that, that's the challenge here, right? Is that if you're looking for one effect or the other, you can't just line them up and say, you know, what the second sentence does. You have to consider it the card in its totality. Yeah, so, I agree. So, um, let's, let's just start, Kevin. And we both know that Red 2 is a playable mana cost in Vintage. <laughs> there are plenty of cards that see play, from Wheel of Fortune to Magus of the Moon and so on. Yep. Let's start with what this can do tactically in the format. Obviously, we already said it turns off Dred- uh, Bazaar of Baghdad, which can really shut down Dredge. And then when yeah. you factor in, when you point out the fact that it also hoses Dark Depths, it can really hose Dredge. <laughs> you know, of course, <laughs> That's true. It, it Dredge has, to get, has a real issue with this card. Of course, it has to get down fast enough um, for yeah. Dredge to... Uh, I mean, fast enough to actually impact dredge, but it, if it does, it can be really brutal to dredge. I would say, just like the Immortal Sun is kind of like Revoker Storm on all the Planeswalkers, this card is kind of like Sorceress Spyglass Storm on all the lands. <laughs> yes. Right? It's like yeah. you got to name just all the lands in Vintage when you played it. <laughs> in Against Workshops, it really only stops Wasteland, Strip Mine, and Factory. <laughs> right. And it's worth noting that you still have to pay two life for Ancient Tomb when this is in play, because the life payment right. is tied to the activation of the mana ability. Right. Um, 
against the rest of the format, it doesn't really do much, does it? I mean, it stops. It's okay. It stops. It, dis- I take it that stops back. fetch lands, against, which I think is pretty disruptive. Against oath of druids, it stops their forbidden orchards, right? Uh, no, or it does nope. not. The um, that, so that's, that's a good a question. Ability. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> there are a few lands that have this case. I just mentioned ancient tomb. Um, so forbidden orchard <laughs> still keeps its mana ability, but giving them the uh, the token is an additional triggered ability that's not part of the mana ability activation. So that part is removed from the card. So Forbidden Orchard does not generate tokens. Forbidden Orchard does not generate tokens. And similarly, it's funny that I mentioned um, Mana Confluence earlier as just a throwaway uh, statement. But similar to Orchard, City of Brass's damage is removed by (laughs) Blood Sun. So it's actually better than than Mana Confluence. That's right. If Blood Sun's in play, City of Brass and Forbidden Orchard are both just five-color lands with no other abilities or drawbacks. Is is that the only instance in which City of Brass is actually better than Mana Confluence? I think it might be. (laughs) Well, there may be some others, but... Yeah, I mean, there cer- could be others. Certainly, under 5th edition rules... Well, with, City uh, of Brass your, is also your... better if you have something that, that tacitly prevents damage to you. If you have Urza's sure. armor in play, then City go. of Brass is better than Mana Confluence. I was going to also... I was also drawing the old Mirror Universe combo under pre-6th edition rules. Yeah, there you go. But, but um, you also pointed out, I think very importantly, this hoses fetch lands. So that's yeah. why you drew the comparison to Sorcerer Spyglass. So this actually does something against almost everything in the format. Against Oath, yes. it stops Orchard. Against shops, it stops factories and wasteland effects. Yep. Against um, blue decks, it stops fetch lands, which could be absolutely brutal. And library and, and strip. And library and strip. And against uh, dredge, it stops a lot of their lands. Yeah. So so th- this is pretty disruptive to every deck in vintage. I mean, it also with, it, with, it, it, with the possible exception of decks that are have their mana bases structured to play this card. <laughs> <laughs> right now, the question is: Is it one obvious question is, is it more or less disruptive than Blood Moon? Almost every card, in fact, I can't think of a case where a card would be affected by a Blood Moon that it wouldn't be affected by this. The, the, uh, the, dif- the difference is that, that is to say, like, a fetch land is affected by Blood Moon and is well, also affected by this. But of course, you the can The best tap- examples, yeah, the, no, the best example is regular dual lands. Yeah, that, that, exactly. That's the. Al- alpha duels are unaffected by Blood Sun. I'm sorry. I, I, I miss. <laughs> I take your meaning, though. Yes, I mean, what I was trying to most say of the is special that- abilities you're trying to disable are also disabled by Blood Moon. Forbidden Orchard is disabled. Mm-hmm. Bazaar is disabled. Factory is disabled. So, uh, but uh, what I the the fetch the, the dual lands is an example of a case of a card that is affected by uh, Blood Moon, but not Blood Sun. But what I was asking is, is there a card that Blood Sun affects that Blood Moon does not? What I'm saying is the class of cards that are impacted by blood, the, the universe of cards <laughs> that Blood Sun touches or changes or affects, right, is almost entirely within the class of universe of cards that Blood Moon affects. That is, the yes. universe of cards that Blood but, Moon affects is necessarily larger. Larger, right? Yes. That's what by I was definition. getting at. That's yes. what I was getting at. So, <laughs> so there is a class of cards that Blood Sun does not affect that Blood Moon does, but there are almost no cards. Blood Sun affects that Blood Moon doesn't because it right. would have to be a basic land that has an effect, and there's by definition right. no such thing. <laughs> so that's what I was so, getting at. That's what I was trying to say, and I think I did I, phrase I it correctly the, the first time. But. There are practical implications, though, for gameplay that I think are connected to the concept you're talking about, and that is how is the game going to unfold if Blood Moon right. or Sun are in play? 
Right. And the the differences there are many differences there. Right. And and yeah. and actually that's the tricky part, right? Because it's not yeah. enough to say what cards what's the universe of cards that are affected by Blood Sun and what's the universe of cards that are affected by Blood Moon? You then have to evaluate the impact of that as of those effects. Yes. Exactly. So, so the impact of Blood Moon on the impact of Blood Sun on Fetchlands is far more devastating than the impact of Blood Moon on Fetchlands. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so Good so example. You have to kind of weigh those against each other in di- in different ways, um, and that's a very tricky thing. So you could say, you know, Blood Moon is devastating against Gush. Blood Sun doesn't do anything against Gush, as long as you're able to fetch out the lands first, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> which is a big if. Which, yeah, which is which is saying something. But you're right. The the dual lands once you get those alpha duels in play, they ignore Blood Sun. So right, right. And I think. Alpha. So, what are the lands in Vintage that have mana abilities and are only ever used for their mana abilities? Well, you Alpha said the, Duels, yeah. Workshop, Ancient, Ancient Tomb, and I guess I, I guess Mana okay. Confluence and City of Brass, where where those are played. The Eldrazi Temple, things like that. Uh, yep, that's right. Eldrazi Temple still keeps all of its functionality. Ca- Ca- Cavern of Souls. Now, Cavern's an interesting example because it has one of those as it comes into play abilities. Yeah. So, if Blood Sun is already in play when you play a Cavern. You won't choose a creature type, <laughs> and, and as such, it's you can never get colored mana, mana from it. Right, yeah. you can never get colored mana because you haven't chosen a creature type. If the cavern was already in play, having chosen something, and Blood Sun comes <laughs> down, then the cavern's mana ability still works because you have chosen a creature type, and Blood Sun's removal of the comes into play ability is irrelevant once it's already happened. <laughs> right, right. So, cavern, cavern's an interesting case. Well, I have to say, after even this brief analysis, my estimation of this card has risen considerably well and i think i agree with you this card was already and like the sun and the moon were already similarly disruptive right we can right. we can argue over the exact effects but they have an effect on every deck in vintage right the fact that you alluded to up front that this draws you a card in my estimation means this is way more of a playable card in yeah vintage. yeah now there is a there is a, a point of departure or a point of comparison which is magus of the moon is a 2-2 body which yeah. is, in some sense, you know, you get gray ogre it's like, and you get yeah, this. Yeah, similar it's to like, drawing a card, right? And, and you, so, can, you can draw an, a, a parallel at least. Yeah. From a resource standpoint, it's kind of <laughs> like you drew a card. Yeah, exactly. But on the flip side, the fact that it's a two-two means a whole bunch of decks gain access to removal. Yeah. Which easier to deal with exist in main decks for red enchantments. I have to say that yeah, it's it's a Magus of the Moon is a frustrating card to deal with, but there are <laughs> lots of cards you could deal with it as long as you can get a a planes in play, you can plow it. Or a yeah. mountain, which you obviously will have. You can bolt it. <laughs> right. Um, and Workshops has built-in resiliency to it, thanks to Ballista. Right. Yeah. So. Um, oh, and, and and obviously Mages of the Moon is a liability against Oath, depending on whose card gets into play first. <laughs> right. <laughs> it, I mean, Blood Moon's main purpose for a long time was just to hose three or four color decks, three, four, five color decks. You right. know, once Fetchlands were printed, Blood Moon lost a lot of its value and i still think that blood sun suffers from the presence of fetchlands even though it more more directly punishes fetchlands it's still yeah. harmed by it because then they can get you know the reliable mana base they need so the fetchlands will matter less once this thing is in play um but without actually having encountered it it's hard to really know and it's not like you see a lot of blood moon in vintage these days it either appears in those like mono red hate decks <laughs> As Aaron Campbell played one of them in the in the VSL this past year, or in Blue Moon, which occasionally top eights a, a, a you know a vintage challenge, power nine challenge, or a local tournament. To um, 
to put some specificity to what you just said, Blood Moon made four top eights of 16 or more players in Q4. Two of them were mono red decks like you described. One of them was full-on Blue Moon. We're talking 2x Consecrated Sphinx. And the fourth was a blue-red kind of roguish deck with Bedlam, Reveler, and Young Pyromancers. So would that deck want to use Blood Sun? I think so. I, I mean, I guess... The I'm firmly in. The, yeah, I'm firmly in the in the of the position that the Blood Sun is the superior card because of the the, the card draw. So, so especially he, in yeah. a control deck shell, right? If you're playing two consecrated Sphinx, you're the sort of deck that wants to draw a card to replace your Blood Sun. <laughs> well, here's here's an interesting way of slicing it. Those hate decks are able designed to be able to play Blood Moon or Magus of the Moon immediately, meaning yes. that they will play like Simeon Spirit Guide Exile yep. to generate a red and. Like an ancient, ancient tomb, tomb or city of yep. traders. If you had the option, would you rather play on turn one, Blood Sun, Blood Moon, or Magus of the Moon on the play? On the play, I think it's Blood Sun. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, right? Uh, I, think, against, I, think, I mean, think about the effects against but, fetches. Well, if your opponent's playing shops, you definitely want Blood Moon. They could go just uh, go workshop. Yes. You're right. Against shops, you definitely want. And that's a big risk because they could be playing shops. You know, like at least one in four, one out of four matches higher. If you're Um, doing well, it's a shop deck. I mean, the the obviously we don't need to analyze this matchup, but the sort of decks that have Simeon Spirit Guide, Ancient Tomb, Blood Sun are also the sort of decks that are running main deck Fiery Confluence. (laughs) Yeah, and so they might kind of want that workshop matchup sometimes, right? That's true. It's they're kitted out for the workshop matchup. But that's that's not your point. So you though. go, like, I, yeah. So you go turn one blood sun. Your opponent's fetch lands are automatically turned off and just completely inert. I mean, it's like yeah, yeah but it's, that's like a sorceress spyglass but, for all the fetch lands in the format. But if your opponent goes tundra, <laughs> would you want that? Yeah, but if your opponent goes tundra, then they can do anything they wanted. Whereas if you had just played Magus of the Moon or Blood Moon, then they can't. You know, even if they could, yeah, you know, they can't. They can't preordain. They can't play. You know. Tundra, Mox, Jace, Fringe, Prodigy, right? Or Young Pyromancer. Uh, that's a fair point. So Blood Moon is legitimately cutting off more lines against those Xerox decks. But you do get a card immediately off of Blood Sun. So that's that's what I'm wondering. Like, do you, yeah, it's in tricky. That, in that scenario, what do you want to play? You're blind on the play. <laughs> also, you know, Blood Sun is actually pretty darn weak against Outcome. Blood Moon is yeah. better because it, it disables Tundras and such. It disables Telerian Academy. Blood Sun doesn't do anything to many of the lands in Outcome. True. So it's worse in that matchup. Both of them make it hard for Oath to... Doesn't even stop Academy. Ca- <laughs> exactly. Both of them make it hard for Oath to execute their plan because it turns that they both turn off Orchard. But Blood Sun still means you can cast the Oath if you just got the Tropical Island or a similar land. Oh, and the Orchard still casts the Oath under Blood Sun. So Oath is still coming down against against you reliably. So that's, that's a mark in, in favor of Blood Moon boy i don't know it's it's hard to say because these simian spirit guide ancient tomb decks are the sort of decks that might just play all 12 of these and be happy <laughs> yeah right so the example is is maybe a little bit moot I, i'm wondering about the effects of blood sun on the development of blue moon decks though if you're blue moon you, you, you can your mana base can be structured so that blood sun doesn't hurt you very much obviously you still play a couple of fetches but those decks aren't, you know, you can fetch in anticipation. But you do still kind of want Blood Moon against Oath and maybe against Shops, as you described. Yeah, 
Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's more disruptive to them in the early it, turns. It also, to some extent, depends on whether the blue decks are running red. If they're not running red, then the Blood Moon is far more disruptive. True. But even if they are, what are they running red for? Dak Faden and Pyroblast? I mean... Pyroblast and Bolt. Yeah, and then Bolt. I mean, and, and some young Pyromancer here and there. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know. It's it's tricky. I think it's it's hard to evaluate because I immediately went to how disruptive the card was, but that completely elides the the replacement, the card draw, right? Yeah, that's that's when, what that's why I made that point up front. I said, that, sure. <laughs> I th- I think this is going to be the tricky part. <laughs> sure. It's I, I think just agree. it's so easy when we have them juxtaposed to just ignore that because we're looking at the disruptive effect. Yes. Boy, I don't know. I I feel like this card has a place. I feel like Blood Moon. <laughs> is you know made four top eights in q4 but it's a, it's a fickle card blood moon it could it could have easily have had zero top eights yeah. in type in, in q4 and, what's your number <sighs> hmm i feel like i want to go on zero i'm going on like zero people will be attracted to exactly what you said up front the fact that this replaces itself well let me go um, first since you you went first on the last one okay i'm gonna go two yeah that's a that's a pretty respectable estimate because I think people will like this card. I really do. Also, it's an easier card to just kind of slot into a deck of a certain style, like like Blue Moon, obviously, but it's just less risk against decks that it's not good against <laughs> because it replaces itself. Um, Boy, that's tough. I'm going to take the under. I'm going to say one. Okay. Let's talk about Silent Gravestone for one artifact. Cards in graveyards can't be the target of spells or abilities. Four tap. Exile Silent Gravestone and all cards from all graveyards draw a card. <laughs> what so, what an interesting thing. So it's ground seal. Yep. <laughs> but you can also um have an active four mana activation here that's essentially relic of progenitus. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the ground seal used to be quite powerful back in the day when people were using animate dead effects that targeted cards in the graveyard also goblin welder and goblin welder right that's above all (laughs) but there isn't a lot of targeting in graveyards these days is there in vintage no this card is a this card's a big hit in other formats dread return does that still target yes it does so So this disrupts dread return and it disrupts targeted graveyard removal like surgical extraction and extirpate but it doesn't stop the most commonly played things. It doesn't stop Cage, Crypt, or Relic, or Leyline. So it can't be used by Dredge to protect the graveyard, nor is it really an effective anti-Dredge tactic. Yes. That seems in to bode form- poorly. Yeah, in other formats <laughs> where the graveyard removal is is heavily le- leaning on things like Surgical, this is good. In well, Vintage, uh, this, this, I just think this is not, it's not hitting on any of the cylinders where Dredge or the anti-Dredge tech wants to be. Yeah, not only that, Ground Seal still exists and actually draws a card when it comes into play. <laughs> it cantrips. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this doesn't even cantrip. It just, at most, if you have four spare mana, can exile. So I think we can pretty quickly dispatch with this card. Yeah. I don't think it's going to see play. Yeah, I'm with you. I think it just doesn't do the right things in Vintage, so I'm going to go zeros. But it is notable that there's only three cards in the Magic Card Pool that do this, and... Uh, we haven't really seen a card like like this in some time, so right. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about Dire Fleet Daredevil. Ooh, maybe this one's interesting. Yeah, I think some of our listeners were probably yelling at me when I said that 
Induced Amnesia is the marquee card from the set. This might be another candidate for that, right? <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see. It's 1R, Creature, Human, Pirate, First Strike. When Dire Fleet Daredevil enters the battlefield, exile, target, instant, or sorcery card from an opponent's graveyard. You may cast that card this turn, and you may spend mana as though it were mana of any type to cast that spell. If that card would be put into a graveyard this turn, exile it instead, and she's 2-1. So this so, is this has been inverse col- snapcaster exactly. I was going to say colloquially regarded as <laughs> reverse snapcaster. Snap, yep. snap your opponent's graveyard. So how it actually occurs is you cast our fleet daredevil. Um, you target, let's say, I'll target your preordained Kevin, right? And I can cast it with any mana I I want. So I can tap an off color mox and cast your preordained. Yep. The only trick is that if that card we put into a graveyard this turn, exile, which is just another way of saying. It's the same as Snapcaster. Yeah, it's just the same. It's just it, yeah. it's just exile that spell. <laughs> yeah. So, but I guess so, it also means that if if yeah, that's all. That's all. It's worth noting, among other things, it's worth noting that this condition is the same condition for casting as Jace Vrin's Prodigy and not Snapcaster. Recall that Snapcaster yeah. gives the spell flashback equal to its converted mana cost. This is the JVP style, where, for you example, can I can return two islands to your gush. Yeah, you can put, in other words, you can play alternative mana costs. Yes. And that's important. Yes. That's really good. Um, it also has first strike. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a respectable body for two mana and vintage. Yeah. I mean, it's going to, it's going to hold off certain creatures. These baseline snapcasters. Right. These baseline stats are definitely playable, but having two one first strike is actually quite important. It means yeah. that it can block a Mistress Factory and survive. It can block a young Pyromancer and survive. It can even block a Monastery Mentor that's not pumped and survive, but yep. it can also, as you said, block Snapcaster Mages and other things. So the first yep. strike actually matters. It gives it, it more heft. It's actually pretty good. The The downside, of course, is it doesn't have flash, um, but right. there is a subtle thing, which is that removing cards from your opponent's graveyard is often quite good. <laughs> that's a good <laughs> it is thing. in the Delve era. I remember when we were reviewing the Delve uh, restrictions a, c- a couple years back, and I talked about how I wish they would design cards that incidentally removed cards from your opponent's graveyards for right. your benefit. And this is actually like, an example like of Death that. Like Deathrite Shaman, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is actually another example along those lines. It, it, it helps make Delve that much harder for your opponent. And there's no denying that this card taking your opponent's Ancestral or even Brainstorm, right, is going to be big game. That's going to feel yeah. like a serious beating. <laughs> Especially when you can tap like a Soul Ring to play those things. That's right. really that's, amazing. That's, that's a really good point, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Cast this and just play a Mox Pearl and play their Ancestral. That'll be fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, so, obviously, the, the problem with this card is that, well, it doesn't really do much against workshops, because they don't have any instants <laughs> or sorceries, unless they've been silly enough to play a Dismember. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, it doesn't really do much, uh, at least when you need it to, against Dredge. We get, you can hit like a Cabal Therapy, I suppose, but... Yeah, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> if it's um, still in there, which is not, a, not but, a sure thing. But the fact that it has First Strike means that it's going to be good against workshops, regardless. Well, I don't know about good so much as... Useful. Not dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I you, mean, it'll Workshop still has plenty of ways to get around this. But yeah, it holds off a Revoker, for example. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm, so I'm wondering, you've talked about the, the low points for this card, though. How good will this be in the Xerox kind of mirrors where it's obviously designed to be good? Yeah, it's 
the, I think the trick is that it's hard to know whether it'll actually be better than Snapcaster Mage. You know, first of all, Snapcaster Mage can trump this. So if you put this into play and you target on instant, right. your opponent can play Snapcaster, target the same instant, and play it first. Which is, yeah, you, you definitely don't want to walk into that scenario. <laughs> right. <laughs> the other thing is that, well, I, I have no doubt that scenario will happen if this sees play. Right. Um, the other thing is that it's well, a couple of things. It's not it's not blue, which means it's not pitchable. Yeah. Um, and you can't use it. Um, so here's the thing: in the <laughs> Xerox mirror, I was trying I was trying to articulate this a different way, but in the Xerox mirror, there's there are different developmental stages and different developmental tracks. Mm-hmm. One player is usually developing faster than the other, so you often have a situation where one player is playing a bunch of cantrips and the other just has a really controlling hand, right? Right. So if you're in the controlling position, this is good but if you're in the speedy position then it doesn't really work out for you right yeah because if your opponent is in the controlling position you won't have a lot of options right so there could be some real situational awkwardness with this card definitely do you see what i'm saying where like you don't actually get a lot of value and if it was snapcaster it would have been a lot better for you and with snapcaster it's easier to plan ahead obviously the flash means that snapcaster applies to a whole other category of cards that this never will Right. Counter, counter spells primarily. So, Although, technically, you can play this on your turn and use it to play a counter spell. So, so that's, so there's that's a kind true. Of, there's a weird in, inverseness to this card, which is that the faster your opponent develops, the better this card is for you. But that's right. not usually the position you want to be in, right? Well, let's, let's, let's tease that out a little bit. If your opponent is developing faster, that frequently means that you would say they're ahead, right? Right. They've seen more cards, they've fixed their hand, maybe they've looted or something. You feel like they're ahead. Does this card help you make up ground if you haven't been cantripping the way they have? And I don't think it really does. It'll help you cantrip once, or it'll help you protect something else by using one of their counter spells, like a red blast or a misstep. Yeah. But I don't really know if this is a... That's the problem, right? This card... Snapcaster is better when you're already rolling. This card yep. is like better when your opponent is rolling, and you, you know, because they have, you have more options, and you're not. <laughs> right and that's not really where you want to be so i i don't know i i feel like in most use cases you'd rather have snapcaster mage i think that's probably true what's the value of getting rid of their resource out of their graveyard if they're Does that factor if, in very much if they're playing accumulated knowledge decks <laughs> yeah you feel me I'm, I'm talking about yeah no. i do i'm talking about if you get their preordain or their ponder yeah, i mean but you see what i'm saying i think that the value here and and i was being a little cute maybe yeah. too cute is when you hit a card that is very strategically important strategically important for them to cast out of their graveyard later on or have in their graveyard later on or have in their graveyard yeah like against oath for example you might have a larger selection especially if they've activated oath but this card isn't going to help you win that game no. if they've oath. No. So against shops, it's it's an ambush viper that doesn't have flash. <laughs> no, but it's better. Has, I mean, it, I, I'd rather have a, first striker is okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's but it's the sort of card you board out against shops. Well, I right? probably would not board this out against shops if I was playing against shops. I would board out other things before this. Okay, fair. I mean, it's the sort of card you didn't put in for shops. There you go. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> That's fair. Um, against Dredge, it's almost completely dead. You know, it's go- it, it's not good in combat in that it's going to get overwhelmed if they get right. going. Right. And it's going to chump block almost anything in the deck. And yes, if you have Graft Digger's Cage out, then you can start casting. No, you can't. Nope. You can't cast out of the radar with Cage. Yep. So no, this is totally terrible against Dredge. 
Um, it's like bad I against said, Oath. It's bad against Dredge. This is just for blue mirrors, basically. Yes, I think so. But also, as I said, I think it's the card that you want to use when your opponent is playing like a big blue deck, you know, yeah. as opposed to a developmental thing. Well, I, I got to be honest. If I'm going to play a red card for a blue mirror, it's going to be another Pyroblast <laughs> in Vintage. This, this could also appear in a humans deck. Um. Okay. You know, where you just, it's it's a little bit disruptive there. You you get an uncounterable human and you get the best card in your opponent's graveyard. Like you could get you could get some value from that. Like replaying a bolt at their head or their planeswalker so they can't yep. snapcaster it, snapcaster and use it on your creature, something like that. This does have this does have a really positive interaction with your opponent's pyroblasts in that it lets you use their pyros on their planeswalkers. That's true. For R2, it's just like if you played a pyroblast and you have JVP Dak or Jace Vrins, or Jace Tele, uh sorry, Jace the Mind Sculptor, then just play this and kill it straight up. Now, granted, Misstep still stops that play like it would have with a regular Pyroblast. I don't know. I feel like everywhere I want to be with this card is just either put in one of those spells of my own or put in another Pyroblast. I I just don't think the value of stealing it from your opponent unpredictably is makes a 2-1 first striker worth playing. Yeah, I'm going to go zero on this one. <sighs> wow. This card is just... I feel like it's too powerful to, to go zero, but jeez. I just don't see where it's going to appear. Let me let me put it a different way. How are you going to feel when someone plays this against you? <laughs> I real I guess it really depends on the circumstance, right? <laughs> I mean, if they take my ancestral, yeah, that was that was the apex of this card. Uh, you know what? You, the the best used scenario is you hit <laughs> you hit your opponent's paradoxical outcome <laughs> and replay it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a, that's something. You're right. That's a, that's a thing. No, I mean, there's a lot of good yeah. uses. I mean, you could yog will. You know, use their yog will. Th- th- those are the those are the most broken uses. But that's not going to be in the main. I mean, that's no, not going to be the most common. That's use. not the normal. Yeah. Yeah. The normal use is you're going to play a preordain. If you're lucky, you're going to play brainstorm. I don't know. I, yeah, I just don't see it. I think it's it's too unpredictable. And it's not as efficient as Snapcaster is because you don't get to choose the timing that you want like you do with Snapcaster. The The mana flexibility that gives you is quite nice. But unfortunately, the decks that we're talking about for abusing this are all the sort of decks who have cleaved almost all of the off-color mana out of themselves, right? Yeah. So when you... Like a Jeskai deck just doesn't have that many off-color sources to begin with. I guess if you're, I guess if you're in, the, in, the, in the mirror, in the Jeskai mirror, Probably the best use would be to hit like a treasure cruiser dig their treasure right cruiser dig. Right after they played it. Yeah. yeah, after they played it and then you exile a bunch of your stuff. That's probably the best use. Well, you know, that's interesting because it makes your delving easier. Well, I'm, I take that back. It doesn't make your delving easier. It makes your delving easier if you've already what am I trying to say? You get to only you get to delve out of your graveyard. Huh, that's interesting. I was trying to come up with a scenario whereby it's easier that you're delving your graveyard with a spell from theirs, but I guess that doesn't make much difference. If you were trying to snapcaster your own treasure cruise, that's where this would be better. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I was that's what I was thinking of. If you're snapcastering your own delve spell, but that's so rare these days. Yeah, you're right though. That's a pretty big beating, especially if you countered their spell. You know, we've been talking assuming that all the spells in their graveyard have resolved. But if you've been fighting one for one with them, if you missed up a ponder and then you force of will their treasure cruise a couple turns later, playing this to resolve your own cruise is that's pretty spicy. But again, it's all just so draw dependent. And having to hold a creature like this in your hand to wait for a reasonable time to play it. This also doesn't have the value of, of the ambush viper that Snapcaster does, right? 
it's rare but i've played a number of snapcasters just on my opponent's end step to threaten their jace or their deck and right. this doesn't have that use case no. nearly as effectively nope yeah it does not but the fact that it survives combat means that it may be more likely to actually hit a planeswalker at some point that's true not more likely that than snapcaster ha- but but in over the course of a game than a regular well creature. like like uh young pyromancer can't hold this off if you're trying to go after their planeswalkers yeah that is to say it can chump but you're just going to stay alive and keep bashing in so that's something i don't know what do you think what's your number <sighs> so here's the thing i think this has a relatively low but nonetheless tangible chance of seeing play in a turbo xerox deck now, ironically, I think it has a higher percentage chance of seeing play elsewhere, but that equates to a lower probability of actually appearing in a top eight deck list. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it, yeah, I think it, in other words, I could see this in like a human's deck or some sort of weird red deck or hate deck, you know what I mean? Appearing, um, but you know, when you, when you, um, cross those, those numbers, when you f- figure out the equation, it's probably best chance of appearing in a top eight is probably in a just guy deck, which I suspect it may at some point see you play somewhere. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, it's, there are a lot of decks out there right now that run, you know, three or four, three Snapcaster mages and Jace the Fringe Prodigy on top of that. It may be worth, it may be that the marginal utility of this card is better than the third Snapcaster or the fourth Jace Fringe Prodigy. I could see that. Mm. Yeah, but only but only in those narrow matchups, I believe. Right. You know, not against chops and That's true. Yeah. I, so, I, I'm pessimistic. I mean, but I wouldn't blame you for going non-zero here. The card well, has some utility. I just think I again, I think it could appear in like a human's deck or a hate deck or something like that. Yeah. Um It's true. I'll go one. I'll go non-zero. You know, those blood moon, those mono red blood moon decks might enjoy it against other swords to plowshares decks, but uh, if they already cast their swords, you're so far behind, I guess. I don't know. It's tough. The dependency on your opponent's graveyard is so unpredictable given how situational vintage decks are constructed. And once they see this card, your opponent's going to be much more circumspect about what they play. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have not really seen the effect of someone being able to regrowth out of an opponent's graveyard. We've just never seen it's that. true. So it's really it's hard to know how that's going to actually play out. Yeah, turn one ancestral on the play is that much more risky, right? When this card right. exists. <laughs> All right, let's move on to one Zakama Primal Calamity Six R G W Legendary Creature Elder Dinosaur Vigilance Reach Trample. When Zakama Primal Calamity enters the battlefield, if you cast it, untap all lands you control. <laughs> and we got three activated abilities. Two R Zakama deals three damage to target creature. 2G, destroy target artifact or enchantment. 2W, you gain 3 life. And it's 9-9. That is a lot of words, Steve. This is a giant dinosaur with three (laughs) heads. It sure is. And each each head apparently has a different activated ability, I guess. (laughs) That's how you look at it. So this card is hilarious. And obviously we're talking about this in an Oath context. Or possibly a show-and-tell context, which is related to Oath. I like this card in the sense that it just trounces every other Oath creature out there. Now, it can trade, it can theoretically trade with an Inferno Titan if the Inferno Titan's attacking and you does the three damage here and you choose to block. But I'd like to point out that its first activated ability does three damage, which means if you have six mana, like they did apparently with their Inferno Titan, then you could just shoot their Inferno Titan to death. But that's, I'm, I'm getting into the weeds. 
I think the the fact that this this dinosaur trounces basically all the other oath creatures is one of the reasons in favor of considering it. And the other is that its activated abilities are just so flexible that it's a total beating against other creature decks and other artifact or enchantment based decks if it ever gets into play. The flip side, of course, being that it has no self-protection abilities, so it can just die to Swords to Plowshares or Jace the Mind Sculptor. What are your initial impressions? Well, I think one of the, the common traits that we've seen in Oath finishers of late is that regardless of how big they are, they're generally capable of being hard cast. Yep. And this card, I think, is outside of that range. <laughs> <laughs> That's an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's... It's a pretty big range when you consider what Brian Kelly's been able to do. But yes, it is. Yeah. Nine I, is outside I seen, of the- Yeah, I have seen Gristlebrand put onto the stack using eight mana, so right. anything's possible. <laughs> yeah. sure. um, but you're totally right. This is three mana more than what than the, the standard for a castable <laughs> creature. Which means that it's a finisher, an oath finisher, not something that you could draw in hand and then play. Right. And unlike Gristlebrand, this just doesn't win the game immediately which I think is ultimately disqualifying. Okay. So you think that you don't want this in your deck in the current metagame, basically? I think it's more fundamental than that. I, okay. I think it is the the simple fact that... Um, um, I, think it's, I think it's more the fact that if you're going to oath into a creature that you have no intention of hardcasting, it better have the most dominant immediate impact on the game. It hmm. is as near as possible to just winning the game. And I don't think this actually does that. Well, I think that's definitely true. I agree with you there. The I lo- I wonder if I, I guess I don't know how often it happens that you lose to workshops after you've successfully oathed. Do you have any in- instincts or input onto how much of an issue that particular specific problem might be? I think I really don't have a lot of insight into that. Um, I have played Oath against Workshop and Workshops against Oath um, in testing, and typically there there can be really late, like two late Oaths. But typically, the 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 you know the some of the scenarios I've encountered are the Gristlebun is just just a hair too late, uh-huh. right? You can no longer you can't attack with it because they've got too much power on the board and you'll lose. Or the worst case scenario is they copy your Gristlebrand, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which we've saw at the Vintage Championship. Which this card trumps, by the way. Sure, but that's a really you know that's a really corner case. <laughs> um, yeah, I think most of the time, the vast vast majority of the time, you oath up Gristlebrand, you're going to win. Okay. Well, I just can't shake the notion that this card is super attractive against shops specifically because it reduces it reduces all those corner cases to almost zero. Those cases that you just said, it completely eliminates the metamorph problem. Effectively, it eliminates the metamorph problem. I mean. Assuming you have access to 2G once this is in play. And it also eliminates the I can't attack problem because of vigilance. And it's two power and toughness larger than Gristlebrand with having activated abilities to destroy blockers. So you're, it's almost impossible. And this card has reach, right? Yeah. So just in case they've got, uh, the, the tokens, it's almost impossible to get into a scenario where this enters play against shops and you can't then finish the game. You would have to be already dead on board, regardless of creature, I think. So I like that element of it. And if you want to shore up your shops matchup with some combination of monsters that that really narrow narrow those particular use cases, then I think this is a, an interesting choice. I also think 
the oath mirror would be it would be funny if the oath mirror came down to actually activating oath more often but i know that's not the case mm-hmm. because zakama here can destroy an oath of druids once they're in play <laughs> right which which is hilarious so it's like a mirror breaker if that ever happens but think about show and tell right show and tell is still a relevant factor in a lot of these matchups and showing this creature in trumps a lot of options for your opponent because it's just there's nothing else bigger in vintage with the exception of an emrakul right so you've got to watch out for that but you would know about that because it's an oath mirror i think but there's there's just nothing else bigger and shops is going to have to basically kill you immediately like you have to die that turn through this thing in order for you to not to not take over the game would you play this over gristlebrand well see i'm wondering if the choice isn't against gristlebrand or the other creatures in the deck right like popular oath configurations right now have one gristlebrand and one or two inferno titans i and there's you know brian kelly's been playing gisella blade of gold knight in the board for example that's a seven mana creature that is rarely going to be cast i just think that this has a place in the sideboard perhaps not in the main because it's it's actively weak against swords depositors and jace the mind sculptor but i think it has a place in the sideboard in that kind of Gisela Carnage, not not Carnage Tyrant, in the Gisela slot at least, and or and or the other flex slot for really specialized monsters, and I think that people might be attracted to bringing it in against uh, workshops. So if you do a if you do a TCD TC Dex search for Gisela, then in Q four there were several appearances of Gisela. Wow. Yeah, there were almost Brian, a dozen, it looks like, well, top Brian, eights by Gisela in Q4. Probably, yeah, Brian Kelly decks. He's had them in the sideboard. Yeah. And if you consider that this creature is comparable to Gisela, obviously they, they serve some different roles, don't get me wrong, but it's comparable. Because I know Gisela is partially in there to turn off Walking Ballista as a win condition. I get that. That's, that's a role this creature can't exactly play. But it can do a similar role, meaning it has life gain right on it. It has destroyed target artifacts right on it. That's what I'm saying. If you get this thing into play and you don't immediately die... Workshop's going to have a super hard time not just rolling over to this thing. So, you know, it's not for the same reasons it's- that you cited for something like induced, induced amnesia, but I think it's dangerous to dismiss such a colossal, <laughs> useful creature as this when we're seeing Carnage Tyrants and, uh, and Inferno Titans actively yeah. in Vintage. So you're you're positing that this could be a Oath Sideboard card? Yes. I think it, for, its use case is primarily that. For shops. And, and other things, too. Yeah. Like you, I mean... There are other creature-based matchups like uh, Bug, for example, that would have a hard time dealing with this. Fair enough. But but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, it's primarily it's geared toward the shops, I think. So I'm gonna I'm definitely going non-zero, and I think it's actually going to be more than one. I think I think multiple people are going to try this. I think it's partially because it's so exciting. Oath is one of those decks that's still like a Timmy deck in vintage occasionally. So I'm gonna go with <laughs> I'm gonna go with two. Well, I honestly have no idea, and I'm just going to be obstinate and say no. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> All right. All right. I look forward to celebrating my victory on this one. <laughs> Next up is Release to the Wind. For 2U, it's an instant. Exile, target, non-land, permanent. For as long as that card remains exiled, its owner may cast it without paying its mana cost. This is a unique effect in, vintage, or in, in Magic, right? Yep. And... For it to be in a three mana instant in blue is is real. I don't know. Interesting. I guess is the first word I would use. So Kevin, um, this if I were to bounce your Jace, you would be able to replay it. Yes, and without paying its mana cost. So wow. <laughs> <laughs> so so I mean, it's it's not actually very good against planeswalkers unless 
you have found a way or a reason to make them casting it again undesirable or ineffective. Like, it's, it's really kind of hard to even think yeah. of a scenario. But if for some reason they, they played a Planeswalker and you couldn't counter it, and then a turn or two passed, and now you have a way to counter that Planeswalker, you can just exile it and make them recast it and then counter it coming back down. That's a use case, right? Also, this, has, this plays weird effects with things that um, have CIP abilities, and you can use it on your own cards. So you can re well, for example, you could use it on your own planeswalker and just recast it that turn. Hmm. Brainstorm with Jace. Oh, that's, that's and then cool. re- yeah. release Jace to the wind and recast Jace and brainstorm again, for example. Also, you can untap creatures, right? Attack with Gristlebrand, draw seven cards, release Gristlebrand to the wind and recast him, and he's untapped now to play defense. All kinds of all kinds of interesting things happen when you've got this complex card that has a bunch of different functions. You can reuse the Planeswalker. You can untap a creature effectively. You can reuse this the comes into play ability of any card. You could release to the wind your induced amnesia, for example, and and get a new hand. <laughs> hmm. So I, I there's there's a lot of flexibility here, and the fact that this is in a mono blue card reminds me of a card we reviewed many many sets ago. Um, Reality Shift. You remember that? Vaguely. Reality Shift is uh, an instant that exiles a creature. It's just exile target creature, and then you manifest the top card of... The, its controller manifests the top card of their library. We were talking about how unique that was to have blue, just mono blue, have the ability to simply exile a creature. Right. And this card has that similar interest element to it. Okay, well, I don't think we need to really spend much time on this card. This card is not vintage playable. Not at all? Not even when it lets you resnap, it's, set your own Snapcaster mage. No, it's worse than it's worse than Chain of Vapor in almost every case. <laughs> no, not at all. No, I, I you just, don't have to pay the mana cost. No, I understand. I, well, obviously, <laughs> if you're bouncing your own Jace the Mind Sculptor, it's better. But I just think the fact that like if I want to chain your Gristlebrand or do this on Gristlebrand, chain is just much better. <laughs> so, well, not on your own Gristlebrand. It's no, not. no, not on your own. I'm saying your okay. your opponent. I mean, yeah. So, yeah, everything you just said is true if it's your opponent's card. Except that um, I'm gonna go sometimes sometimes you don't want that card to be in their hand, for example. Sure, that's fair. <clears throat> well, I'm not sure where this card fits. I think it has a lot of utility because of how just how broadly applicable it is, non-land permanent, right? But the effect is narrow. It's not just it's not a bounce. It's actually in a lot of cases slightly less good than bounce even on your opponent's stuff. But it's it's interesting on your stuff because of all the reasons I already stated. So it's got some proactive uses. Uh, I'm a little bit torn, but I I think hmm, I think I'm going to go zero still. And it's not just because you're so pessimistic, <laughs> but I think the card is borderline, and there's so much borderline stuff that that I don't know. Well, anyway, we can move on. Let's talk about Storm the Vault for two. You are legendary enchantment. Whenever one or more creatures you control deal combat damage to a player, create a colorless treasure artifact token with blah, blah, blah. At the beginning of your end step, if you control five or more artifacts, transform Storm the Vault into Vault of Catlacan, legendary land, which taps for one man of any color or blue for each artifact you control. So Storm the Vault is a four mana enchantment, and if you've got five artifacts at the end of your turn, it becomes a better Talarian Academy. Mm-hmm. The tri- obviously, the trigger condition on this, uh, whenever one or more creatures you control deals combat damage, you get a treasure. In the decks that want a Talarian Academy in Vintage, the trigger condition is definitely not going to be the standard. 
Telerian Academy decks sometimes have some Snapcaster Mages, right? But most of all, this is the sort of card you're trying to just get your Academy out because you already have five artifacts. And in that sense, for four mana, you could already go get your Telerian Academy today right. for three colorless mana. With Expedition Map. With Expedition Map. And for 1G with crop rotation, if you want to yep. take that approach. <laughs> Which is unrestricted. So, yeah. So I, I genuinely have a hard time believing that this card is going to be used for its treasure generating effect repeatedly. It seems almost impossible. Nor for its go find an academy feature. And note that the enchantment and the land are legendary too. So it's not like you can pile up multiples of these and play just for fun. So I, I really think that if this was going to be a strategy, it would already be so in um, Expedition Map, and so we don't have to go much further. Do you agree? Is this a zero for you? Yeah, this is a zero. I mean, I just think it's way too much work for a Telerian Academy, and um, yeah, you can do so many other things to get a Telerian Academy. And, yeah. and it would be one thing if, if, like the other flip card we reviewed this evening, this the, the, the front side actually had a lot of utility, but it doesn't. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. Some some of the f- the front faces on these flip cards are things you can abuse. This one is real low power. Just get yeah. treasure. Yeah, get get token, uh, get artifacts. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, it may this is obviously a lot easier to trigger because all you have to do is five five artifacts. So yes, but, you don't even need to use its 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 uh, other triggered ability. You can right. just have yeah some moxin and stuff. Sorry to people who who uh, recommended uh, that we review this one. But. <laughs> yeah, well. Some of these are easier to review than others. Speaking of which, Flood of Recollection for UU Sorcery. Return target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard to your hand. Exile Flood of Recollection. It's relearn at blue blue instead yep. of blue to blue blue one. And there was a uh, another re- relearn reprint. I can't remember what it's called. Oh, Call the Mind. That's uh, yeah. blue two. To you. Yeah, yeah. to you. So. And for that benefit, then those three mana versions don't exile themselves. This one does. True. Uh, so we're just we're in a, in a format that has an abundance of recursion effects and far more than can possibly be played. I mean, for God's sakes, regrowth is unrestricted. The original recursion effect, and it right. sees almost no play. <laughs> right. And you could obviously point to the fact that this being mono blue means that it's easier to cast than regrowth but that's i don't believe that's actually true because this is too designated right it, i think in vintage it's actually easier to play 1g than it is uu agreed yeah and regrowth to your point in q4 it looks like regrowth made two top eights in in storm combo isn't that amazing <laughs> really yeah, only two top eights and it was a one of you know one of in storm combo so what that what that tells you is both that we don't need to move to a card that's inferior in in function, especially one that's harder to cast for a storm deck. Right. I don't think the fact that you can play a mono blue deck and recur your instants and sorceries with this is is attractive. I'm going to go zero. Agreed. And that's the last card on our list. That brings us to the end of our Rivals of Ixalan review. Let let me cover very briefly our total predictions here. So for Mastermind's Acquisition, it was zeros. Same for Merfolk Mistbinder, Thrashing Brontodon, and Azor's Gateway. For Immortal Sun, you predicted zero, I predicted one. For Induced Amnesia, you predict three, I predict zero. For Blood Sun, you predict two, I predict one. For Dire Fleet Daredevil, you predict one, I predict zero. For Zakama, Primal Calamity, you predict zero, I predict two. And for the 
Release to the Wind, Storm the Vault, Flood of Recollection, and Silent Gravestone. It's zeros across the board. So the highest number predicted for any card in this set for Vintage is you predicting three appearances of Induced Amnesia. Yeesh. That's not (laughs) very good for this set. I think it's better than, I don't know, pick your worst set, Theros, Prophecy. (laughs) I guess Prophecy had almost no playables. Um, (laughs) But I think this set's better. I mean, look. There may not be a lot of cards that are big splash splashy cards in this set, yeah. but the car but the set has cards that are at least thought provoking. We spent a lot no. of time on the Daredevil, on Blood Sun. These are cards yeah. that are, you know they're situationally better than existing playables, yep. um, and so they they really they merit close analysis, and they're also difficult to evaluate. So I um, well, and I'd like to point out that we've predicted five cards that would see play here. And that is one more than we predicted for Ixalan. For Ixalan, we only predicted four cards would see play. Even There you go. Yep. And the actual for Ixalan, by the way, was one, two, three, four, five. Five cards saw play out of Ixalan, so we'll see. Before, before we leave the, uh, the, the, the set, Joe Farino said in a forum post that his goal has been to get mentioned in our podcast, so I want to give him a <laughs> shout-out and direct people, <laughs> direct people to his, uh, his articles um, – on on um, Rivals of Ixalan. Last Friday, he published an article that looked at some of the cards that we're looking at. Yeah, his uh, first article on this for MTG Goldfish is called Spoiled Rivals, and it was published <laughs> on January 12th. So he, he talks about Blood Sun and just scanning through it right now, the um, Masterminds Acquisition uh, and Induced Amnesia and some other cards. So um, shout out to Joe Farino, who's been writing about vintage for several years now. And Joe is kind of a workhorse in the vintage yeah. content uh, arena. He's so the only, yeah, can, he's the only regular weekly columnist. Yeah. So if you're not already in the habit of reading his content, I definitely recommend it. But we have more to speak of in this episode because we want to talk, even though it didn't have any specific changes for vintage, about the recent, as in in the last 48 hours, January banned and restricted announcement. So Steve, you and I both kind of wanted to discuss this because of the structure and nature and content of the data and how data is applied to policy in this announcement. Yes. Because even though it has no changes for vintage, all the changes are relative to standard, there is an unprecedented amount of detail provided here based on Magic Online deck performance and matchup performance that is the sort of thing, obviously, we've been doing for ages and have been really clamoring for Wizards yes. to do. And so <laughs> it's it's really kind of refreshing, and, and we just wanted to talk about that and what it means for the future of policy in a banner-restricted setting. Yes, yes, there's there's a number of things to say here, but um, to your point, you know, over the last couple of years, you know, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, we've made the point that in this era of big data, in which... Wizards policymakers have access to plenty of data that the level of sophistication that should be applied to DCI slash R&D uh, policymaking in managing constructed formats should be much greater than what was acceptable in previous decades. That is the kind of slapdash back of the you know envelope calculations that were used to manage formats in the 90s just doesn't wash today. Um, and for a number of reasons. One is that not only are there more data and data tools available uh, and metrics to look at, but there's also a, a greater record of tracking formats over time. 
know, even though standard rotates, you can look at several decades of standards and draw comparisons. You look can look you can do composite analysis, you can look component analysis, you can look and see, you know, what percentages are decks in standard. And you can do the same thing for vintage. You can we've certainly done that in our podcast, Kevin. Um, Definitely. And so I was really struck both by the length of the explanation as well as the a level of detail and the metrics that were applied. I have to confess, though, that I don't really understand what they're talking about because I don't know the strategies <laughs> or decks that they're discussing, but I definitely took note of the approach. Before we talk about that, though, I just wanted to flag a couple of things. One, as interesting as this announcement has been and some of the components of it or elements, it's also been interesting to follow the discussion about the announcement. <laughs> Right. So there's been a kind of, <laughs> of <laughs> there's been a kind of, you know, I, again, I'm only a half watcher of this, but there's been a lot of back and forth. In fact, in my social media, I've seen a lot of polarization around this decision. And one of the things that struck me was someone, I think it was April King, posted, she said something like, in the last 10 years, there's been, in a 10 year period, there were like two bannings in standard. In the last two years, there's been 10. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but yeah, she was pointing out the, the alarming increase in standard bannings in the last year, right. year and a half. And I think I think that suggests something because the same thing has happened in vintage. From 2009 until 2014, there were no restrictions in vintage, just unrestrictions. And since 2015, really, starting with the fall of 2014, there's been a, well, it's actually, it was, it was effective beginning of, of 2015. There's been a, six, what, six or seven restrictions in vintage. So right. there's been an, analog, an analogous amount of interventionism in vintage as there has been in standard over the same period. And yet they're completely different formats, and the targets of restrictions and bannings are completely different, which suggests not that, to me, what that suggests is that there has been a change of management philosophy, not necessarily that there is, under the same standards that have been applied before, suddenly an increase in the number of necessary restrictions or bannings. And, and, and vintage and standard, respectively. Does it does that track? Does Kevin? Does it make sense what I'm trying to say? Can you do a better job of explaining that point? Well, it suggests that the correlation suggests causation. I guess is, is how I would summarize what you're saying. It suggests that there is some correlated cause from a, and from its, the policy standpoint. And obviously, the fact that the formats and the cards in question are so different. Um, rules out anything that is gameplay or design related. Yeah, it's not card pool related. It's not, it's not even set related. So the fact that all those things are entirely dissimilar suggests there's another explanation. Right. Now, right. one possible explanation is coincidence. Yep. <laughs> so we have to acknowledge yep. that. But to your point, we have seen an increase in the sophistication, the frequency, the hands-on nature of banner restricted policy application over the, the course of the last few years. And some of that could be affecting every format, basically. Yeah, it could be that now, magic online data is affecting every format. That that but but yeah. but that but that doesn't it's worth pointing yeah. out that there are more formats than just standard and vintage. And you know, the same trend hasn't manifest in modern and legacy, for example. Yet. But yet. But it doesn't necessarily have to for there to be an underlying cause, right? Yeah. It could be that just those, the, the bars that's higher in those cases or what have you. But you and I have talked about how th- when they increased, they basically doubled yes. the frequency of their announcements, <laughs> it, that there was certainly a, 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 a potential, a, a great potential for I- increase in the quantity of banned and restricted cards. Exactly. As a result. Exactly. A year ago when they announced they were going to start, they would... 
not only announce ban and restricted list changes with each set, but the intervals in between, Aaron Forsyth was very careful to say, we do not anticipate or we'll kind of work to make sure this doesn't increase the number of bannings and restrictions. But right. it's hard to say that it hasn't worked out that way. I mean, <laughs> and, and it's not just because the data, you know, the data points. Let me, let me, let me step back and try and explain this another way. Um, 10 years ago, ban and restricted list announcements were, were announced four times a year, like clockwork. Right. Quarterly. <laughs> Quarterly. Beginning of the quarter, here's announcement, here you go. Um, Regardless of where we were in the set rotation. Com- yeah, completely irrelevant to that. And and um, now it's, I mean, you said double, but it feels like it's almost monthly. There's an opportunity <laughs> for intervention. Yeah. And it's hard to know if there is an underlying dynamic there that makes it more likely that something will get banned and restricted. Here's a number, there are a number of ways that could happen. And I'll just put a couple possible theories out there. Kevin, let me know what you think. But let, let yeah. me just say two or three of them. Number one, when you have more op- more announcements scheduled, it means that the DCI itself is more focused on this question than it otherwise would be. And so, therefore, you have more discussions and therefore probably more attention to the issue. And it's one theory is that more attention to the issue from the policymaker's perspective means that there are more intense discussions about maybe what could be done to improve the format. Pro- improve your form- focus improve, deter- improve formats, rather. That's Your focus determines your reality. There you go, Qui-Gon Jinn. <laughs> um, <laughs> the second possible theory is that with more opportunities for um, pre-scheduled opportunities to, to, change, to make changes to banned and restricted lists, the community itself is more focused on banned and restricted list policy management, and therefore these moments become focal points for community organizing and agitation. And so uh, if it was just on a quarterly basis, that agitation would be more diffused and more focused. But now that it's almost on a monthly basis, um, there's a kind of more of a through line for agitation. So if a, a vocal community segment, say, and I'm, I don't know anything about standard, want, was concerned about one deck, then they can write more articles about that, lobby more on social media, write more emails. And if nothing happens, the you know, then the attention of the policymaker is more focused on it, and then it increases the probability that something will happen at the next interval. So the third yeah. possible theory is that there is an interaction between the first two theories that I just talked about. So it's not just yeah. the focus of the policymaker or the agitation and organization of the community induced by induced by the, the pre-scheduled events, but there's an, a dial a, a, a kind of dynamic interaction between the two that that <laughs> ramifies in a sense. <laughs> I think. The practical result is if you te- if you make a, a intentional decision to examine the issue more frequently, twice as frequently, then Aaron Forsythe's statement about we're we're not going to assume that we're just going to make more changes is a little bit foolhardy in the sense that you would have to intentionally ignore you have to intentionally make a policy change to not make more changes in a sense exactly right? you can't just you, would have you to can't be, just say we're going to go about business as usual because right. the actual scheduling itself is going to induce more discussions and more discussions yeah. means more scrutiny and more scrutiny means that there's going to be you know it's going to allow players to organize to self-segment and agitate in a different kind of way it's, it's yeah. think about it this way if and I'll I'll put an extreme an extreme I'll flip it to the extreme. Suppose listeners listeners suppose that the ban and restricted list announcements occurred only once a year. Let's say right. July first, 
and that's it. Yep. I don't know anything about standard, but here's the question for the standard players out there. If that were <laughs> the case, how many bannings would we have seen in the last couple of years in standard? Would you guess? Yeah. Fewer is, is the most likely answer. Would be my guess as well. Right. Yeah. And I think in, in vintage, I suspect that would also be the case. There would be fewer restrictions. Yes, I agree. It would be... Also, yeah. I mean, to take that extreme example, when you're faced with that kind of schedule, it changes your heuristics for your choices, right? right? You have to make a choice that you think is going to be better for a longer period of right. time also. You're, you're incentivized to make a choice that won't, that won't require additional action in three to six months. That's true. So for standard, so you might be with, more aggressive, but... Well, yeah, and I think in vintage, that's something of what we saw with the gush probe restriction, right? That that was, I believe, a somewhat of a speculative restriction in the sense that, hey, if this doesn't do it, we can always take action again in a couple of months. And that's also the kind of action that you get when you have a more rapid schedule. But it's also the case that if you have fewer opportunities, that even if there's something you you need to do, by the time you actually get to the next opportunity, it you it may have just the issue may have just by been bypassed naturally <laughs> that too I, but i think that's different than what i was just no saying. it is it but is I i'm agree. just giving that's you another example thing. yeah yeah another reason so all of these things means that the results are different and i think the shorter time between announcements also incentivizes more granular action just by definition right and all of these things conspire to mean that that what aaron forsyth said was i think foolhardy is probably a pretty good right a pretty good description of it honestly it was bound to create more action on their part. Yeah. It, it, even if someone says, you know, if, if you were the manager in the DCI or one of the you know managers, which Aaron Forsyth reasonably occupies, you might have said, you know, we're not going to do anything differently. And therefore, we don't expect to, to be to, to take more action yet. Right. That you ignore, have to do something that it, different. You have to do something differently <laughs> to not exactly because because of the, <laughs> yeah. the ways in which a pre-scheduled events induce induce additional action not necessarily in a direct way but often in a very important indirect way or multiple indirect ways so a couple things that stood out to me in the in the explanation was that number one ian duke um drew uh comparisons between the contemporary standard metagame and historical baselines which is something that we do a lot in our podcast kevin we'll talk about like you know where a deck is now compared to where they, it was a dominant deck was historically, and he does that. Sure, sure. Number two, and so he you know, says, for example, that these decks together comprise a significantly larger portion of the standard metagame than any other than any other deck. Um, and he also talks about t- what's typical for standard metagame. Um, another thing he does, though, so the, they look at percentage of the metagame, and I don't know whether he's talking about percentage of top eights or just percentage of the metagame, but the other metric he uses is a lot of match win percentage. They have a lot. They have a whole. They have multiple tables here of match win percentages, pre and post board, which is something they've never done before, and, and we've been doing for years now. Right, um, and that's pretty interesting. You know, they talk about that and is is an important metric. So, yet it does strike me that well, he's talking about like these two decks are forty percent of the metagame. That would not necessarily be a problem in vintage. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? No, it wouldn't. In fact, we've dealt with that scenario for a while now. Right. So the the presence of these metrics confirms something that I speculated about on a couple of occasions in the past when we talked about their policy and their usage of magic online data. I said that we don't have proof of it externally, but I believe that they have access to this kind of granular data and they should have 
algorithms and other data analytics in place to provide this kind of data to them on a regular basis. They should have dashboards and things that are looking at, hey, how did the standard leagues do this week? What deck is dominating? What's the match win percentage is that kind of thing. Now, I can't tell you whether or not they're monitoring this on a daily basis or not, but this does at least confirm that they have access to this data and can call it up. We don't. And I would. True. But but I would add one thing. We don't know whether they've ever used it before this point or significantly before this point. That's fair. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. So it might have been they just punched this up. But even so, it's welcome addition. I would, for those of you who are not data analysts, as I am professionally, I would just ask you to consider what it takes to come up with this data. And at the basic level, for example, they have this broken down by deck type. And the standard, to use the standard metagame, they've got teamer energy and, and various Ramanap red lists and, <laughs> you know, the, the standard players. But think about what it takes to, um, to categorize a vintage deck. Vintage players are given to reading deck lists all the time. We're given to talking about decks with simple names by their by their names. But uh, if uh, you know a, a printed list of seventy five magic cards doesn't come with a name when it's on Magic Online. So they have to have an algorithm that's operating possibly in real time, possibly after the fact. I don't know that takes a look at seventy five magic cards and gives it a name. And that's not easy to do. That's not easy to teach a computer to do and use the same precepts and terminology that we humans or magic players are comfortable doing right mm-hmm. we we're real pat human humans are pattern recognition animals we're good yep. at looking at 75 magic cards and saying oh that's you know that's team or energy or oh that's ramonet bread and you might be able to list a couple of features for how you did that off the, off the bat but it's actually kind of tricky and there are professionals involved with programming a computer to have an algorithm that does it reliably and there are there are issues related to Decks could be closer to one versus the other. The energy decks, you know, obviously dovetail with three and four colors, for example. That's tricky to do. And so they've put work into here. This takes some effort. Just categorizing magic decks is actually a, a tricky sure. problem for, for data analysis standpoint. And Steve and I <laughs> struggle with it all the time, right? We've And, and our friends, uh, uh, Matt and Ryan, struggle with it too. They've come up with a tagging method like your, like your labels in Gmail where you... Yeah, uh, deck can be a member of multiple different categories. That that kind of stuff is tricky from an analysis standpoint. There's no classification. So, no, no question that taxonomy and classification is one of the slipperiest yeah. areas of magic analysis. <laughs> and they've they've done it here, but I, I just want to point to that fact that that is not easy to do. And so those of you out here who might be saying, "Finally, we get we get match win percentages for these matchups," they should have been doing this for years. This is tricky stuff. And we should be grateful, I think, that they've put forth this energy and recognize that it was not, you know, it's not something they just necessarily had all along. And so I hope that this becomes a standard and they stick with it for these announcements and maybe others. On the other hand, there's been a tremendous backlash. So it's it's not just enough to have data analysis. It's about what are the standards that you apply? And there can oh, yes. be different standards for different formats. Absolutely. And I hope, you know, this this announcement has with it some Im- implications about what are desirable standards. There are some implications about this match win percentage is desirable, this is not. And hopefully that can be coalesced into applying to policy in the long term. Right. I don't expect it to be done the first time necessarily, but there are some statements of principle involved in this announcement as it pertains to what is health in a magic metagame and it's obviously it's something that the community hasn't ever been able to fully agree on right right vis-a-vis diversity and other kinds of metrics and the next announcement is february 12th so (laughs) (laughs) which is it's what three weeks four weeks exactly a month from now it's just 
It's crazy. Well, we hope that this kind of transparency is brought to bear on vintage band and restricted announcements in the future, since it's the sort of thing we've been trying to promote for years. So Ian, if you're listening to this and anyone may be sitting next to Ian at R&D, please, uh, please thank, thank you for uh, putting this together and please continue in this vein because this is the kind of thing we want. Which brings us to the end of episode 75 of So Many Insane Plays. We've got our closing question, which we like to do for all of our set reviews. What do you think is the best vintage card in Rivals of Ixalan? And thank you for listening to episode 75. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Ha, 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 ha.